get more out of life. Go out to a movie. Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's going on? It is Nick Vance, Paranormal Futures on all social media. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinematic movie possible. All right, Jim, what are we talking about today? Well, we are kind of doing a listener, uh, more specifically Patreon listener request episode. So, and actually it wasn't really for an episode. So over the last several months, I've gotten people on Patreon asking me like, hey, I want to get into film programming and do screenings like you do in my hometown and things like that. Because like since Cinematis movie and all that, like people are like, and like just learning about like the live shows that. I host and all that. People are like, hey, I want to kind of do that. And how do you do that? And instead of like individually writing people back, I was like, you know what? It might just be easier to do in podcast form. So what this episode is, is so you want to be a film programmer, which I know is kind of a not intentionally flippant title. Kind of sounds like it as it's coming out of my mouth, but too late, too late to fix it. But what I hope to do in this episode is just basically give people like insight ideas resources in how to do screenings and gatekeep discourage (laughs) (laughs) well you you do run into that but like the the other thing is like i'm just going to talk about like you know my background and other film programmers backgrounds because no one goes to school or wakes up one morning with kids like you know what i want to be when i grow up a film programmer It's a weird job, and it's like, it's not even my full-time job. Like, there's people that program, like, full schedules full-time. You know, if you, like, what I do for the American Cinematheque, I do Mondays. And, but there's, you know, a group of other programmers that are busting their ass trying to fill every other day at two venues. You have the New Beverly, which has a couple people working on that to make sure their calendar's full. You got people, you know... Friends like Phil Blankenship at the New Bev, he does that. Graham Moniker and um, Chris Lemire, who do a lot of the work at the Cinematheque. And then you got KJ, who's over at UCLA. And like, there's a, there's, and then that's only in LA. And I'm not even naming all the venues in LA. There's fucking tons of people that do this. And they have to like bust their ass. And some people like, you know, program months in advance. Some people just do it on the fly, you know? So what I hope to do with this is like basically try to talk on all levels. And the reason why I'm saying levels is because a lot of people are looking, maybe thinking like go to a movie theater and do a screening. It's not really the easiest thing to do, but there are other opportunities where you can still host screenings and, you know, depending on where you're at, you can build up and work with a theater. We talked a little off mic 
earlier about this book called Our Band Could Be or Our ba- a book called Our Band Could Be Your Life, which is about like kind of the punk to grunge era, which was like the eighties, where it's like, you know, you got all the hardcore bands and then you evolve to like, you know, what would become like I guess indie rock bands and stuff like that before you had the Nirvana grunge boom. College rock, as we said in the last episode. Oh yeah, college rock. I guess we already did talk about it. Why is this a recurring topic? Is this the new black flag? We're just old and this is a point of reference for us. But the reason why I bring it up is like that line the title book comes from a Miniman song and it's basically saying like, you know, you could do this, but you can do this on your own and you can don't have to do it in a traditional way. And this also kind of goes into my programming philosophy, which I'll get into as we're talking about it. But, you know, just kind of set context here. What are some backgrounds of film programmers? Well, you know, a lot of people that show movies with the film school. And not necessarily on the filmmaking track, but a lot of them did like essays and theory and like, you know, film history and things like that, which are all important, you know. Some people come at different angles like you know there's people that come from event planning event planning comes in handy because like you can have a bunch of screenings then you know like okay we have this big event because we have guests and that kind of stuff and like if that's your background it's going to be much easier than someone who just knows film you know and this is kind of more my background which is coming out of like punk rock and diy music and the reason why this is my approach is because the way i do cinematic void is i treated it as like Kind of a way, like, I'm trying to think the best way to say this, but, like, it comes out of, like, booking and playing shows. And, like, the, that mentality. It's the, the mentality I had is when I used to be in bands and play shows and tours and all that shit and selling merch and all that is the same kind of ideology I use for how I do Cinematic Void. There's a lot of things that, like, you know, comes from event planning. You know, I also went to film school. I was more of a filmmaker track than like film theory and criticism, that kind of stuff. But I did some of that too. But like, really it's just like the background of being, you know, punk rock bands and stuff like that. That's how I approach film programming. And I'm going to mention throughout this, that like some of the things that I can do is because I have advantages and I'm not trying to like be a downer, but some of these advantages come through things we're going to be talking about later. Others are just like, you know, I mean, the reason why I do Cinematic Void, and I've talked about it on previous episodes of the podcast, was basically Beyond Fest. I met Christian through Beyond Fest. I did some video work for him. Then I started working at the theater for the American Cinematheque. And because, like, I did a lot of video work and that kind of stuff, I just, you know, and made suggestions of movies to play that they ended up doing. I just basically, like, pitched something and kind of wrote out, like, a aesthetic sheet and that kind of stuff. Not aesthetic sheet, but like, you know, a, a vision of like what the series would be. And they said, yeah. And I'll talk a little bit more of that. I keep saying we're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but it's because it's it's going to be throughout. I'm going to try to keep things as clean and concise, but like just the nature of this discussion, which is kind of different. It's going to jump around. Apologies for that. But, you know, how I got into film programming was just, yeah, I... Met people, made connections, built relationships, and, you know, started hosting stuff and got fortunate enough that people came to the screenings, which is absolutely fucking important, which is something people kind of forget about in the film programming sense. My question for those of you who want to get into film programming or hosting your screenings, what and why are you programming? 
something you got to think about. It's got to be beyond like I just like cool movies and I want to show cool movies. I mean that is you a, just you just think you're the taste maker, you know? You're you get a come on, buddy, get a handle on your life. Yeah, it, you really. Who do you think you are? Yeah, it it you know because you love and champion something isn't doesn't necessarily translate into actual film program because there's movie some of the movies that I love that I went to bat for fucking tanked as screenings yeah and that's just the nature of it because like something you love a lot could be something that no one gives a shit about seeing on the big screen no one will ever share your love for 80s sex comedies it's a shame it's a shame but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm never gonna fucking stop slipping them in but yeah whatever so when you're thinking of programming what's your focus gonna be and this is more if you're doing a series, something like Cinematic Boy, not general programming. Because if you're doing general programming, you're looking at a whole month and you're going to look at like, you got to have a plan. You can't just plug in like, ah, oh, fuck it. We'll show Once Upon a Time in the West. Then we'll show Lawrence Arabia. Then we'll show like, you know, Halloween or something like that. You know, you got to you got to have plans and you got to like have a sense of like continuity with what you're showing. Because if you just throw up a fucking calendar with just a bunch of random movies, like it's kind of sc- sh- scattershot. And there's I've seen people do it. I've seen people do it, and I just look at it like the fuck. Yeah. And like I'm not trying to be. I mean, it's a way to do it, but I think most people that do programming like put thought into putting stuff together. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing a series, and if you're doing a genre series, what is your focus going to be? And when I started Cinematic Void, like part of like the pitch deck I made it wasn't really a pitch deck. It was just like a Google doc or like a word document that had a list of like, this is the mission, which was like basically taking, taking the title Cinematic Void was showing underappreciated cult movies and, you know, giving them some love. So that was part of the mission and also trying to pick things that don't play a lot. But like my focus was also on not just horror movies, but cult movies in general from like, primarily I'd say 60s to 90s and for the most part I've stuck within that era I don't really go too deep in the 60s I don't really go too deep in the 90s there's been times I've done like things from the 2000s and stuff like that but like they're few and far between so what is your focus what do you want to show do you want to focus on just fun 80s horror do you just want to show like you know gritty 70s like action movies I mean, obviously, you want to show more than that, but, like, what's your main focus? What's your vibe? I feel like this is good. We we had another discussion about what's the word that ends up getting overused or the phrase in a podcast. I have a feeling vibe's going to be the one for this one. I already sense it because I already feel in the back of the head, like, yeah, vibe, vibe, vibe. Say it. Sounds good. Sounds good. Say it again. Just say it again. So, (laughs) yeah, it's going to be one of those. But, like, really... What is your focus? What is your agenda? What is your mission? Why are you screening these movies? What collectively puts them together? And it has to be more than like, I just like them. You got to have a little bit of a philosophy. You got to have a belief in what you're doing. And this is, you know, again, we're talking more like, you know, the kinds of films you're going to show. It's like, it's all focus. Like, I always say, start with, with what you're most confident with. And you know. If you really know, like... Japanese outlaw cinema, maybe that's what you program. If you really know 
I don't want to get too narrow because if you're like, I just love the films of Robert Altman. Well, you can do like a few screenings and then you're going to run out of movies. So it's got to be a little bit broader than that. So it's just like, you know, think of films you really like and think about how they work in the greater context. And again, and I probably already covered this a little bit, but you got to define what you're doing. It, again, don't be scattershot. Like have a mission of why you're screening stuff. You're like, I want to show like, you know, really bonkers, underseen 80s movies. You know, I want to show like horror. I want to focus on Italian horror. I want to focus on like 80s action movies that were like made independently, like stuff outside of like Robocop and Terminator and things like that. It's things to think about. The other thing you need to really do is look at what other people are programming. And you, it's even if you live in a town that doesn't have a repertory or art house cinema, you can go online and check out programming from across the country. You know, you can see there's, you know, New Beverly prints up flyers, but they also post online their flyers. So you can see what they're doing a month. You can go look at the American Cinematheque website. You can see their calendar. You can go back in time and see what they showed like three months ago. You can look at the Nighthawk. You can look at the Coolidge, like any, any venue that does repertory cinema. You can see what they're playing and how they're playing it. And you can also see the shifts in focus, you know. And if you're looking at genre stuff, look at the genre stuff they're showing. Look how they're presenting it. Are they just doing it as marathons? Are they doing double features? Are they doing midnight shows? Just look at it all. And think about what you like about what those venues and programmers and series are doing. And think about the things you don't like. And then figure out how that applies to you and what you want to do. Because you're going to have to have a little bit of a hook. Because if you go in trying to say like, oh, I'm just going to show you know the classics. Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th or whatever. That's going to be pretty vanilla. Because basically you're a programmer that's already there. It's like, well, I can fucking do that. Because they're all easy things to book, you know? They're like, you know, most repped houses are going to throw up like one of those three movies. You know, if it's Friday 13th, obviously somewhere across the country, someone's playing a Friday 13th movie. Just like, you know, around October, someone's going to play a Halloween film. One of the first three, because those are usually the easiest to book. Or around Christmas, someone's always going to play Silent Night, Deadly Night, or Christmas Evil, or something like that. You know, if that's what you're bringing to the table, you're not going to really stand out because that's what a lot of people already do. Those are kind of like the stock answers. And you have to separate yourself from that. You got to be able to like, hey, I know you're doing Christmas horror. Let me, let me suggest something else to do. Like show Dial Code Santa Claus, you know. I'm using an example, but or think you know we did two whole fucking episodes on non-traditional Christmas movies because it's just like the reason why is one programming wise I want to figure a way to separate myself because it's like I can't play Silent Night, Deadly Night, or Black Christmas, you know because like our friends at the New Beverly do that play both of those pretty much every year around December, and like that's just their thing. Think outside of the box. Play the Goldberg Christmas movie. Oh, Santa Slay? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a good idea. Like, seriously. Because then you're thinking outside of the box and you're figuring out different things you show. 
whether they're successful or not, it's hard to gauge. But like, you got to kind of also be a little bit counter programming, which is why you want to look at what's already playing. And if you're in an area and you're looking to do something at a theater, you know, you got to look at what you can offer them that they're not already doing. But within reason, if you're too way off the grid and too weird and, and I, I'm saying this like, and what I mean by too weird is like you're picking films that are hard to book or if there are prints, you have to fly them in from another country and it makes it more expensive or there's no materials or like that kind of stuff. Which is another reason why you want to look at a calendar because you can see what's playing and you can see what's available. So you know like, hey, I want to do like a Charles Bronson marathon. What movies have played on like 35 millimeter? You'll see... Hey, this place played Ten to Midnight. This play, this place played Death Wish two and three and that kind of stuff. So you know what's available because when you're planning stuff, like you kind of want to know what's out there because then you know you have you know there's things that you can actually screen. We're gonna take a quick break here, and when we come back, more film programming talk on the Cinematic Void podcast. And now preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. Why is this couple under attack? Slithers. In the classic tradition of the creature from the Black Lagoon, and the thing comes now. Slithers. Slithers. A horror so outrageous that no one believed. Slithers. Slithers. Rated PG. Virginia, just when the rich young snobs at Crawford High condescended to come to her birthday party, they're all being murdered in the most bizarre ways imaginable. Happy birthday to me. Pray you're not invited. Rated R, now playing at a theater near you. Welcome back. We've been talking about the ins and outs of film programming here on the Cinematic Void podcast. So moving on here, ways to get into programming. And this is a question that came from Midnight Dave over on the Cinematic Void Patreon. His question was, when starting a new film series, is there a particular strategy in establishing a new audience? How do you cater to an unfamiliar region? And... I, I'm assuming you're talking about like an area that you already kind of live in or nearby and you're looking to like do some horror or cult film screenings there. And the thing is, we just talked about a lot of this on the segment or the part we just talked about, which is like, look at what programming is around. You can look at theaters in that area or nearby or like, you know, within like a hundred mile radius. Because, like, people that are diehard rep cinema will drive to go see shit. Like, I was talking to Midnight Mark over the Coolidge. He would tell me there's people that would fly to the fucking Coolidge to see someone 35mm and then fly to L.A. to go see something. Crazy. Rep cinema heads are fucking diehards. They will go out of their way to go see something rare. Ultimately, the ways to kind of get your foot in the door is start small. And what I mean like that is, like, Unless you already got pool or a relationship with like a theater, you know, maybe look at alternative venues. You know, look at 
non-traditional venues like bars show spaces places like that you know there's a lot of places that will do like diy screenings and how do how do those types of things get projected i mean usually they'll run something off a laptop or you know mm-hmm. if it's a bar that you can just play it on a tv or like a lot of places have like a projector screen so you're plugging your laptop into a projector and it's projected on a wall that kind of stuff now it's a good diy affordable way to get in programming because you can test out your taste However, anytime you publicly screen a movie, technically, you have to pay rights on it. So if you have your friend over... Well, not... Well, not, not. Hey, Jim, come over here and watch... No, no. Okay, let me... <laughs> if you go over someone else's house and you do a movie night, you're fine. Which is actually a good way to like get into programming. You just throw a monthly movie night and just... Basically, it's your test kitchen. Mm-hmm. If you want to use like a chef metaphor, like... All right, cool. I just picked up like this crate, you know, Sergio Martinez American Rickshaw. I want to see how it plays with that audience because, you know, maybe down the line when I can do my own screenings, I could show it. So then you have a reaction. And actually, yeah, that's it's good you brought it up. And that's actually the most affordable way to do it because all it costs you is buying a Blu-ray. If if your if your homies don't even like your taste in film, fucking forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> like you can you can think like, oh, I'm showing like my friends all these crazy movies and like they're not liking it. And that is a valid point. If you're getting not great reactions, you might want to reevaluate because like if your inner circle of friends aren't into what you're playing, think about think about how that translates into the bigger scheme. I'm not saying that there you, you just might have friends that suck and maybe you need new friends, but you might want to keep that in mind. Just thinking about it but back to what i was originally saying here as we got sidetracked but important sidetrack here is if you're showing a movie at a bar or if you're at like a horror convention you set up like a you're they do screenings if you show a movie that's owned by like a studio or someone you technically have to pay rights to screen it a lot of people don't do that and i know there's been like a lot of my friends that run boutique labels that like own theatrical rights on stuff have found people who like brazenly do Facebook events. Like, come see the screening of such and such movie. Are there easy channels to to get in touch with the the rights holders if you're trying to screen something like like you're saying it's just Halloween at the bar? You know, something that's like a huge film. I mean, there there are websites, yeah. you know, obviously. Or and we'll well, I'm gonna talk about this now, even though we're gonna talk about more about this later when it comes to booking. But like, you know, you go on IMDb. IMDb will tell you who most of the time who the current rights holder is for like major films and they'll usually have websites so you can go there and you can book stuff and the reason why i'm saying this because like again as i was saying like you know i know people run boutique labels that run theatrical stuff that like they'll see like an event posted on you know for like a screening of one of their movies and they'll send a cease and desist now oh. is this, is that cease and desist? And it's sorry for so many sidetracks, but is that cease and desist um, more of a nudge, like, hey, you should pay these rights, or is it just a let's just shut this shit down, like let's not even work, do the like? Isn't it better to try to get that money than to? I think it depends, because it's like you know a lot of people are like, because there's also people that try to blatantly like do screening, like they'll show a Blu-ray at a movie theater, mm. and they think, well, I own the Blu-ray, so I'm gonna just show it. When, like, you know, you everyone has to sit through that fucking FBI warning. Even if you're showing a Blu-ray that you own, 
because it's not your house and it's a public place that even unless you're even if you're doing a private rental in a movie theater, technically you have to pay rights on it. That's just how it works. There, there was even debate of when I was running the record store. You know, when you're playing, when you're playing even Spotify or you're playing music in a record store, there's there's debate on whether you should have to pay rights because you're publicly broadcasting them. Oh, yeah. Strange thing. But actually, it's the exact same thing. Like movie theaters, like I know a couple of movie theaters that like got letters from ASCAP, which is one of like the music, like was it music publishers Mm -hmm. who are like, hey, you're playing our artists. You owe them money. So, like, anything that's played in a public space, like, usually if you're doing bar screenings or whatever, no one's going to pay attention. But you should also be prepared that you might get an email. It's like, hi, I own this movie. You need to talk to me and get permission. And this is going to come into something we're going to talk about real soon. I don't want to say later because it's actually coming up kind of next, but I want to get through this. You know, it's going to say, like, you can build a relationship off of that. You could do something that's bad and be like, hey, I'm sorry about that. I didn't know I, you had the rights to it, but I can pay you this much. Let's work something out. Mm-hmm. And I think most smaller scale, you know, boutique labels that own theatrical and their stuff would be cool with it, you know? Or they might not give a shit. Like, ah, dude, just put me as a co-presenter and, like, they'll use the drum up business for the releases and stuff like that. But there's also going to be people like, nah, dude, you didn't ask it. Fuck you. Shut down your screening. Yeah, and if you don't, you will get a cease and desist, and it might get to court and that kind of stuff. Not rad when that happens. No. Another part of Dave's one of his questions was, "How do you approach a local theater when trying to partner with them, or is it that they approach you?" And honestly, I don't really have the right answer for this, but I'm gonna say this: I I recently had a filmmaker reach out to me, who said who asked if I'd be interested in screening his movie, and honestly i didn't know so it's like please email at info at cinematicvoid.com and the filmmaker sent me this his you know screener is filming all that and it's a film that's been out for a while but like he wanted to do this event but it's very specific he wanted to bring in his own moderators and that kind of stuff and it's just like it's not me trying to be egomaniac but like you should know who you're approaching Mm -hmm. and if you you know if you're just looking for a place to play your movie or you know it it kind of comes off slightly disrespectful if you're like trying to you're trying to tell someone that has a platform how to do something which is why like if you're approaching a movie theater say hey i want to screen movies here you got to be careful in how you word it how you approach it because like it could come off as like okay you want to do my job Mm -hmm. and that's not an ego thing but it's just like oh you don't think i know what i'm doing well, our screenings do such and such numbers and that kind of stuff. So you got to be careful not to come off that way. And, you know, I don't know too often, like, if other theaters reach out. I mean, I guess the best context is, like, and this is going to lead up to what's coming up next here, which is, you know, you need to build relationships. And I say build relationships because... Cold calling people isn't only going to get you so far, you know? And sometimes cold calling works because you might be, like, internet famous or someone might be aware of who you are. But really, you want to build relationships with people, especially if you want to work at a... Like, do a series at a theater. You need to, like, one, go to screenings and talk to them. Two, become friendly. Three, offer the help in different ways. Like, put yourself out there. 
And if you're there and you're like helping, like, hey, can I help with this horror screening? Hey, can I help with this? You know? And they say yes, you're building a relationship. And then down the line, like, okay, maybe you can host the series. Or, hey, we'll let you pick a movie to screen. You know? You got to build up to that. There's very few people that, like, jump in, like, cold. Being in a band and wanting to get on shows. Yeah. It's you know, like, it's like if you don't go to the show, go to other shows that you're not playing in the first place, I'm not going to fucking book you. Yeah. Oh, that, that's exactly right. And this is, you know, that's a perfect, perfect example. It's like, I remember being in bands and like we, you know, we go to shows and we give demos and that kind of stuff. And like, hey, keep us in mind for kind of shows. It didn't always work out, you know. You have Especially- to, you have to respect the, the, the politics of the way everything works. If you, if, if you then do get a show and then, as soon as your band's done playing, you pack up and leave and you don't watch the other bands. Well, you're not on the next show. Yeah. It's, you know, basically you can't, it can't be a one way, you know, one way street. Mm -hmm. You can't get what you want because again, relationships, partnerships, that kind of stuff. It's gotta be two way street because you programming has to be something beneficial for the theater in some way, you know, it's bringing a new audience in or it's like you can guarantee a certain amount of tickets sold or stuff like that. I mean, it's really like band stuff. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, just you got to think about it. Like if you're approaching a theater that already does rep screening and you're like, I want to do a specific series, think of it in their shoes because it's like they might be interested. But if you approach it a different way, that's going to shut the door permanently. They'll come with those bad vibes. Yeah. It's just like, again, it's just like if... But if you're a regular that goes to screenings and you're not annoying, key point, not annoying. But like you can offer just like, hey, if you need help with something, like if you have another skill set, say you do editing, say you work at a print shop and print up like flyers or posters and stuff like that. If you have things that you can like barter and trade, that opens the door. Mm -hmm. But yeah, cold approaching doesn't happen. And I don't think too often a theater goes in unless it's like a specific programmer that like travels around and they want to bring that in. Or if it's like, you know, someone that's written a book on films and that kind of stuff. That's the only time a theater is going to reach out and let someone like program a block like that. Mm -hmm. Like if you go back and listen to the Kayla Janice episode when she did um, House of Psychotic Women, there's people that were like inviting her out and programming based off her book. Mm hmm. That's probably the perfect example of like a theater approaching a programmer kind of thing. So I already mentioned building relationships. And what we're going to talk about is the difference between networking and building relationships. I fucking hate networking because it's worthless. All networking is, is that you go to an event, they're usually at a bar or restaurant, you talk, you meet people, you make connections, and then they just become people you see around town. But networking in general, right? Like uh, the more organic form of networking where you just, you know what I mean? Like put yourself in the situations where without being, again, annoying, but there are ways to network without it being like, all right, we're all meeting at this place and blah, blah, blah. That sounds so formal. And Well, I mean, when it early on in LA, I went to networking events and I found out pretty early on. That that sounds awful. That just sounds terrible. Because it's, it's the way networking works at least in my eyes, and there's going to be people that are going to disagree with me, networking kind of is like parasitic. It's like, right. it's people being parasitic, trying to get something they want without doing something for something else. Yeah. Which is why I prefer building relationships, which means you offer stuff up. If people are receptive, they're going to offer something back. Right on. Fair enough. And obviously you will run into cases where people are going to be like, oh, you're giving me free shit. Cool. Not do anything beyond that. Mm-hmm. Like, thanks for the favor. Here's a ticket to a movie or something at some point. Yeah. 
which is a possibility too. But you know, the the other thing when you're working on a film series is you should find partners to work with. Not necessarily co-programmers, but like you know, people that could either, you know, work with you, like help you out, kind of be like, you know, mentor you. There's that option. Like, you know, you can connect with people that do film series and programmers and other like-minded people. And you can reach out with the only agenda to be is just like, hey, I like what you do. I respect what you do. Be their friend and not the bullshit like I want something from you. Because like when I get like someone's just trying to like get something from me, I immediately shut it down. Yeah. And it's something like it's something that I've had to do more in the past six years since doing Cinematic Void because like and it's not that I'm trying to be a dick and close off people, but it's just like, you know, there's a certain amount of energy I can give. And if it's just like if your whole reason you're talking to me is because you want something specific, that doesn't serve me. But if you're like, hey, I like what you're doing, blah blah blah, you come to shows. You're cool. We talk. You mentioned like, hey, I do art or something like that. Would you be interested? Like, that's the approach. You know? You you want to work together. You want to collaborate. And it, but ultimately, you got to be prepared that it's a two-way street. And it can't be just what you want. When you're talking to other people, like other film programmers and that kind of stuff for advice and stuff, just be mindful that, like, most programmers will give you, like, you know, ideas and help and tell you like, oh, you should do this and that. Like I talk to other film programmers across the country a lot and in town because like, but at the same time, make sure that, you know, maybe this town isn't big enough for the both of us. Yeah. You know, well, I, (laughs) I, you know, everyone in LA, I know not, not everybody is, is so gracious with information. Yeah. But like, you know, one of, one of the people I talk to a lot is Phil who works at the new Beverly and like Phil's a friend. And like, we talk about stuff, we talk about film in general, but like we'll also help each other out. Like you're like, Hey, how is this print you show? We're thinking about showing in a mm-hmm. couple months. Hey, you, cause Phil is also a private, you know, he's a private collector of film prints. It's like, Hey, how does your print look? You know, which archive do you have it stored at? Like, so we know the lead time, the book and that kind of stuff, you know, it's things like that. And the th- here's the funny thing. Like in LA, it feels like people are like, think everyone's like super competitive it's like cutthroat all the theaters fucking hate each other no we all talk dudes <laughs> yeah like we talk all the time there, like I, I have to go over and pick up film at at various theaters around town and vice versa like we all we're, we're all together here yeah it's just like the the thing about la that people don't understand because there's so much rep cinema it's really a treasure trove like we're literally fucking spoiled but it's also, you know, you build relationships with the other theaters because, like, they could help you out at any point and you could help them out, too. And if you're a fucking dick, you will be remembered as a dick. Yeah. And when you need something, you're going to be left high and dry. Totally. Which is why, you know, my other part of vice is just be nice to everyone. Even if at the end of the day it's someone you don't want to work with, just be nice, be genuine, you know? Yeah. Besides film programmers, the other thing you can do for building relationships is, you know, look at people that are doing stuff that are adjacent to you. And what I mean by that is like, you know, horror conventions, record stores, stuff like that. Like people that would have a shared interest might not be 100 percent, but like enough of a interest that you could work on special screenings, you know, 
For example, you could have a screening and have your friends that like sell horror soap or some shit be a co-presenter. And they have like 50,000 Instagram followers. So that puts more eyes on your screening. And it's also you're building relationships and you're having friends and you're giving them the opportunity to set up a little booth to sell horror soap. I don't know why I'm picking horror soap. It's... Maybe you and your friend's barbershop can screen Edward Scissorhands or Barbershop 1 and 2. No, actually something like that. It's something that's like collaborative where it's like you're still the film. I mean, it's still your show, but you're working with someone to get the show out there. Mm-hmm. So you want to f- figure out partners like that. Like, you know, we did... I. I did that screening of Slave to the Grind, that Grindcore documentary, and I worked with you when you were working at the record store to set up a, like a pop-up shop. I also got Kim from Born from Burning, who promotes metal shows across like Los Angeles to be a co-presenter on it and just help promote it and do a DJ. Her and the, that whole collective do a DJ set beforehand. So that was many collaborators, and it worked out because I got an audience that would never probably come to a show otherwise. Right. And and that's an audience that's you know gonna gonna be appreciative of what you do. Otherwise, a lot of times, you know, horror horror and metal music definitely go hand in hand sometimes. Which sadly doesn't always translate to screenings. Mm-hmm. I would like to figure out because I think there's a whole subsection of like metalheads, punks in L.A. that just don't go to rep cinema, mm-hmm. and that's something I've been trying to really solve for the last few years. And like sometimes you can get it, but it's just like I also think like rep cinema it's its very own niche. Shit, man, might have to start handing out flyers at, at metal shows, you know, just like get some flyers that look like metal and punk flyers and fucking when people are leaving at the end of the night, hand them out. Boom, boom, boom. No, I motherfuckers mean, are coming out to see hack lantern Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's actually the point I was going to mention here. It's like, that's another approach too. The thing is you want to get an audience and like, if you have a relationship with partners that do stuff that like are close, you know, related to what you're screening. It helps because that puts butts in seats, mm-hmm. it puts eyeballs on the screen, and it also puts you in a better light at whatever venue you're at. Because if you're filling a venue with a crowd, it might not always be the same crowd, but you can draw a crowd from many different areas. That's perfect. Because like what I was saying, like rep cinema is very niche. Genre film cinema is very niche. There's people that will only come out to a screening if it's 35mm. But then... I think there's a real untapped market, and I want to talk about this because we have some big horror conventions in L.A. There's like Midsummer Scream, and there's like Monster Palooza, like both versions of it. And I get the impression that a lot of people that go to conventions do not go to screenings. Yeah. Unless it's like John Carpenter, Jamie Lee Curtis, Mm -hmm. or some shit like that. Well, it's like autograph hounds are a whole other animal, and, and then beyond that... Like back in the day when when we used to go to horror conventions back in Maryland, like I strictly went just so I could go buy shit. Like I'm just going to buy a bunch of fucking DVDs. Yeah, exactly. You know? So it's like I wasn't going. I wasn't going to rep screenings. I didn't know about shit going on at the fucking center or the Charles or wherever the hell else, which I sh- wish I had at the time. Yeah, you know. But I mean, sadly, I don't. The Charles in the center didn't do much horror stuff. Like yeah, when like the rep cinema that. I, I was going to with Bruce Holchek. We were driving to fucking New Jersey right. or Pennsylvania because of Harry and all those dudes doing Exhumed films. Totally, totally. I mean, again, rep cinema crowds will travel. But the reason why I mention this is because this is something I've worked on. It's like ways to get people that normally don't go to rep cinema screenings into your venue, totally. which has been successful and not successful at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
in like, you know, that I'm trying to figure out the fucking horror convention market. So I feel like you guys wear fucking full on like horror merch every fucking day. Mm -hmm. But then like, you know, I screened Halloween too pretty recently out of season, which is pretty funny, but I mean, it almost sold out and obviously Halloween two is more of a marquee title than I normally show, but yeah, I still, I still got a lot of regulars. I still, I got a few people that were just like specifically love Halloween two, but it's like, I don't feel like I regularly tap into convention people. Yeah. I guess, I guess the next step is going to the convention. Oh, I'm actually going this year and I'm actually going to promote for Monster Palooza. Cool. Hell yeah. I'm just going to do it on foot. Yeah. Or like, if I know, like, obviously there's going to be, which leads into our next section. Like if there's labels that are, have tables there, like boutique labels, I could probably put some flyers and like sit in and cover for them while they're like taking a piss or going eating a hot dog or whatever. So this brings up to our next part of relationships is, and this is very key for genre stuff because there's a lot of boutique labels and building relationships with boutique labels. This is something I did very early on with cinematic void. Like basically I started with two screenings. And while one title, the first one, X-Ray, was not owned by a boutique label, it's actually owned by the MGM library, Shout Factory, Scream Factory, had put out that X-Ray Blu-ray with Schizoid, maybe earlier that year or the year before, I can't remember. And they get, and reached out to them, and Shout Factory sent a couple copies to give away as prizes. The screening I did the next day was The Sinful Dwarf with Severn Films. I had recently, I met... I actually met David years ago, David Gregory, because I met him through Bruce Holacek. We actually, first time I met him was, he was doing a traveling screening of his movie Plague Town with Sinful Dwarf, and we saw it somewhere, I think, in, like, Virginia? Someplace like that? Bruce would probably know better than that. I just remember we got fucking drunk, and it was really fucking late. <laughs> but anyway, like, I met David years ago, and then I was working with um, Rendezvous, who was doing screenings at a bar. They would do DJ, they would show a movie and then do a DJ sh like set and like I was cutting visuals for him and I was picking movies like that should have mentioned that earlier but like that was another way I got in the film programming was like I was working with them because like hey I'll cut reels for you all right cool and it's like hey do you want me to pick some movies in the screen beforehand yeah so shout out to Alfonso and the rest of the rendezvous crew because that was another opening see this is going to be all over the place but but it was through rendezvous who was also partnering up with different labels like Severn Films that you know I kind of met David Gregory again. Obviously, he probably didn't remember me from meeting him like five, six, seven, whatever, how many years ago it was. But, you know, through my relationship with Rendezvous, which was actually created through my relationship through Beyond Fest, this is why we go back to relationships. You know, I did some editing work for David and Severin, and I mentioned I was starting the doing Cinematic Void at the American Cinematheque, and, you know, if they wanted to, like, do some kind of screenings together. And they had just finished a restoration of the Sinful Dwarf. And ended up, that was Cinematic Void number two. And, like, that was the premiere of the restoration. Um, and that was the beginning of a long-term, you know, productive working relationship with Severn Films. Severn's probably the label I've worked with the most. I've said that on this podcast many times. But then through David, I was introduced to Joe Rubin from Vinegar Syndrome. And then through Joe Rubin, I was introduced to Lewis from Massacre Video. So see how relationships build, and you meet more people, and you meet more people you can work with. Mm -hmm. 
All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, more film programming talk on the Cinematic Void Podcast. your friends in our Hollywood bar. They did it before. They're doing it again. And they'll keep right on doing it unless someone stops them. When murder and rape invade your home, when the cops can't stop it, Bronson will his way. Charles Bronson in Death Wish 2. Rated R. Clint Eastwood hears the most terrifying words ever spoken. The screen's most frightening plunge into terror. You're not helping me, Buster Blue Eye! Get off my back, Evelyn! The next scream you hear may be your own. Clint Eastwood in Play Misty for Me. Rated R. Welcome back. We've been talking about the ins and outs of film programming here on the Cinematic Void podcast. And you're building relationships, you're finding venues to work with, you gotta promote shit. So this next part is build your social media and promotion. The most important thing you can do to get things out is you need to build an email list. And the reason why this is more important than saying having a ton of followers on Twitter, Instagram, all that, because the way algorithms work, you could post something and no one will ever fucking see it. But if you're emailing someone direct, they'll very least get an email with what you're doing. Very early on, like the first first year of Cinematic Void, brought a clipboard, had people sign up for a mailing list. And then at different times, I would do contests to give away prizes and had people sign up online to build it that way. Mm-hmm. And it might not be the biggest email list, but like it's like 700 people. And that's fine for me, especially like realistic how many people are going to come to the show. I would obviously like it to be more, but like it works. And I know like everyone that's on the email list for the most part is interested in stuff. Yeah. And even if they don't open it, they might just see the title and it might be reminders like, oh shit, I want to get tickets for Halloween too. It's about to sell out. I should go get tickets. Totally. Now, let's talk about social media. It's, you know, you're going to have to have it all. Whether you want it or not. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Instagram is probably where I built most of my audience and have the biggest amount of followers. Mm-hmm. But we're going to get into how meaningful that really is. Twitter, I actually think is the best way to promote stuff. Because, like, you might not get retweets and stuff, but the way the algorithm works, you'll see things on your timeline from people that, like, mm-hmm. you don't even follow. So there's a chance, like, you know, just organically, or not even organically, because it's an algorithm. Like, your post about, like, showing Carnival of Souls will get eyeballs on it. Mm-hmm. And even though you don't get the retweets and that kind of stuff, like, if someone sees it, they'd be like, oh, that's cool. They might keep you in mind. Other things you can do is like, and this is very void centric, and this has been from the beginning, which is shout out to Eagle Barber, Eagle Design, Cinematic Void logo, all the shirts, and all the posters we post 
or I post online. And there was an episode with Eagle. What's that episode number, Jim? Man, when he asked me episode number, I, I think, love it. <laughs> I, I think it, Eagle's episode was ten or eleven because it was around this. We did because we did. It was him and Ethereum, and we did those pretty close together. So one of those is ten, one of those is eleven. But it's, it's in that range. It's very early on. But Eagle's a great dude. Listen to the episode. Graphic designer, punk rock background, which fits into the philosophy of how we promote shows. Now, Nick was in a band with Eagle, which we talked about in the episode. But long story short, Eagle was like, hey, I'll design stuff for you just because, like, I think it's cool. And I think, you know, I like the idea of, like, movies being presented as band flyers. Yeah. Plus, it was just him fucking around. Like, he works for, like, he was, at the time was working for big, like, clients doing graphic stuff. And now I think he's um, a curator doing graphics for a skateboard company now. Mm-hmm. I think Madrid. Madrid? Okay, cool. I, 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 I congratulated him when he got the job because, like, I know he'd been, like, working working to get something pretty good and solid. So, But Eagle just designed shit. Again, this is an advantage I have, but it's also from a relationship. I met Eagle through Nick, who was in a band. They were in a band together, and I shot a music video. I think I was wearing a torso shirt, like the movie. Eagle's like, oh, that's sick. And we started talking about movies, and then build a relationship with Eagle. I get a kick-ass logo and fucking flyers. Again, that's something just to keep in mind. The other thing, besides having flyers, and sometimes we didn't never really printed them out. We always do it, you know, social media-wise. The other thing I do... Very early on for Cinematic Void, I would cut custom trailers. Put them on YouTube, share the link. Um, at the time, Instagram would only let you have videos up to 15 seconds, so I had to. I would cut a 30-second trailer, and then I had to cut a 15-second version of it. Oh, no shit. Now you can have up to, I mean, you can have up to seven minutes of fucking video because of Instagram TV and stuff, but different world. But I would cut custom trailers that were tailored to the event. I was not the first person to do it. Like, we were doing that stuff for Beyond Fest. I think Draft House was doing it. Cinefamily was doing it. You know, there, there's been plenty of people who have cut custom trailers over the years. So it's not a new thing, but I kind of cut them in the style of, like, what I was trying to present. It was the extension of, like, what I wanted to do with Cinematic Void. So it's not going to be, like, a two-minute trailer. It's, like, fast, punchy punk song. Mm-hmm. Which is why even when I do trailers now, I I prefer a 30-second to a minute-long trailer over to like a three-minute trailer. I don't even know how to cut a three-minute trailer. Yeah. They're just too long, but you would use those to promote. So this is another question from Midnight Dave. And he says, while every series is different, are there certain standards on how to advertise? Perhaps certain times to make an announcement versus reminding people of screening. How vital is social media? Are Facebook events worth boosting? So I'm going to try to answer all of that. For normal screenings, the second tickets go on sale, I'm promoting. And I need to get a shout out to the social media manager, Eddie, who does a bang up job. He puts together eBlast. He does, runs half the Twitter, Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. But the thing is, the way social media works is like you can't do one post because no one might see it. You don't know what's going to like slip by the algorithm and actually get to your audience. But, you know, my thing is like you, you fucking promote hard. Like we're, if I'm promoting a show or a series, like two to five posts a week on the various platforms. 
just because like you don't know what's going to be seen and there's different angles you can work you know but then there's something like you know january giallo which there's actually a planned rollout because there was other theaters involved there was press involved that kind of stuff so that was a little bit different and sometimes like if i have like one of the bigger series that i know is going to get booked in advance and i can get some press on it and like get eyeball get eyeballs on it that i traditionally can't for just doing a regular screening of like the fog there's a different approach to that and i just use january giallo because that's the best example because like you know 2020 and this year when i actually got to do it in theater got some press did some interviews you know had a rollout with all the theaters big push but that's not necessarily a norm but that is an approach that does happen now, I'm going to go back to when I was mostly doing monthly screenings. And for me, if I knew I had a show once a month, I'd like to have a month-plus window to promote. Mm-hmm. And when I was, like, I guess pre-pandemic, when we were doing screenings of The Egyptian and occasionally The Arrow, I was doing double and triple features mostly. As opposed to now, which are regular Monday single screenings. And because I was at the Egyptian or Arrow, I was looking, you know, this is the Egyptian, what before it's being renovated, used to seat 616 people. Arrow seats about 420. That's a lot of fucking seats to fool. But, you know, the realistic expectation is you're not going to sell out those shows. Like, you know, the only time we would sell out is like stuff like Beyond Fest or like huge fucking stars coming in. Or is just the right movie, right time. Like, there was a time we showed Stalker that had, like, 500 people of the Egyptian. There was a time we showed fucking David Lynch's version of Dune, mm-hmm. which had traditionally been Poison, yeah. did, like, sold out the Egyptian. Oh, yeah. And there was no one there. Yeah. yeah, there was no one there. Although most people were coming in like, I'm here for the David Lynch movie. I'm like, no, you're here for a fucking movie about spice. Mm-hmm. Anyway, those are, like, few and far between. But... The expectation I was always told for my shows is like selling up between 150 and 200 tickets. And, you know, I would always, I would be given like weird days, like Thursdays and stuff. If I was given a Friday or Saturday, obviously I would probably do something more mainstream to fill it up. And I used to have them written down, but I think my average at the Egyptian, and that's the big house. We're not even talking about the Spielberg, which is where it started at but i'm just going to talk about the egyptian for this context like i think my average was like 250 roundabout and what that means is like when i would do something i'm trying to think of a show that did really well when i did dress to kill and tenebrae with nancy allen that was almost a sellout or when i showed a 35 millimeter print of jaws that was a complete sellout and then there's like showing like trying to like joysticks and pinball summer where there's 80 people in that 600 seat room. Yeah. (laughs) That that feels empty. Yeah. So (laughs) that's what you're working with. And you know, the way I would advertise to get things out, like these are the angles. Am I showing 35 millimeter prints because it's LA rep house? You're showing 35 millimeter prints. You can pull audience that way. Mm -hmm. Do I have talent book? Do I, am I doing a Q and a with someone? That's another way you sell tickets. Mm Mm-hmm. And try to fill the venue. You know, the way with triple or double and triple features, it's like you promote the whole show, but then you can focus on individual films. 
So it gives you more ways to promote because there might be an audience like, I'm just going to pull this out of my ass here and talk about From Beyond in the Mouth of Madness and The Mist. It was a New England Nightmares triple feature. I had two Q&As that night. I had one with Brian Usna for From Beyond, producer From Beyond. And then I had Sandy King and um, Julie Carmen for In the Mouth of Madness. So I had two Q&As to promote. I had three different movies to promote. And we were showing the black and white version of The Mist. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of different ways to promote it. And I promoted it every single way. Like there was the custom trailer for the event. But then I could post the actual trailer to the movies and stuff like that. So you basically the reason why I want a month is so I have every avenue to promote. So if I if someone doesn't like, eh, I don't know about this triple feature, but wow, I really want to see Brian Usna talk about From Beyond, you can get that person. The way I've been asked to do the Mondays is based on monthly themes. So if I get two, three weeks to announce the theme and then all the shows, obviously I hit the first show the hardest because that's the less amount of time and then the other two can build behind it. But it's kind of the same thing because you can promote a whole series. You just translate from, instead of doing a triple feature or a marathon, you're just showing four individual movies that are linked together. Mm-hmm. Same philosophy. Except instead of promoting one show, you're promoting four. And also the expectation's a little bit different because Lost Fields 3 seats 150 people or so. Mm-hmm. And the expectation on Monday night, which is kind of a tough sell of a night, 60, 80 people. Yeah. So a different world. But again, I still keep the same approach of doing two to five posts. Like coming up at, at this recording, I'm doing Horror by the Water with Carnival of Souls, Messiah Evil, and The Fog. I might do two to five posts, but not every post is going to be Carnival Souls that week. It could be Carnival Souls, and there might be a Messiah Evil post, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely the week before the show, it's going to be leaning on the movie that's coming up, but you want to continue to promote the upcoming screenings. Because if you neglect them, people forget about them. The question of social media being important. It is and it isn't. And the reason why I say this is because at this recording, I have over 14,000 followers on Instagram. What does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. It looks good on social media, but like, what the reality is the fraction of real eyeballs that see things I promote because 14,000 people aren't all in LA. There's people that are just interested in like, Oh, you post cool horror stuff. I like that. And then there's the audience who want to know about shows. And then there's other people who are just like keeping tabs or whatever. There's a lot of reasons why people follow. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's important because you just need, it's just a tool. And like, you know, not an influencer or any of that kind of shit. Because I see like other film series that have a lot more than me. I see film series that have been running longer than I have that are just as successful, if not more successful, have less followers than me. Mm-hmm. All it is is a tool that you need to promote. Yeah. But you can't solely just promote on there. You have to do other shit on there. Which is why you want to promote like brands of friends you have. That kind of stuff. Or like, hey, I like this new album that came out. You gotta throw some of that shit in there because, again, you're bringing in a different audience that you might not necessarily have. And for the question about paying for advertising, maybe a few years ago, I think paying for boosting Facebook events was useful. Now I think it's fucking worthless. Mm-hmm. I think their algorithm fucked things so much. Like I remember like trying to post ads for like 
selling merch. And I had a whole ad run with not a single click, and they didn't charge me anything. It's the dumbest shit. So it's like, I, I don't know if they cleaned it up, but like, you know, before I could hit an audience. Mm-hmm. Now it's just like, it's fucking worthless. Because like the way they say they target isn't how they actually target. And on top of it, I stopped making events on Facebook. Yeah. And the reason why, it was a waste of my time. Because I would go, they, they're a pain in the ass to do. And then you would get like 20 people maybe are coming to your screening. It's like nowhere, nowhere represents anything near the true number ever. No. You know, so it's pointless. So it's just like, if I'm, I'm just doing this, because like before you would have actual people like, I'm definitely going this and that. But do you think that that got at least more eyes on the fact that it was occurring? Not based on the numbers I was seeing, because they would say how many people were viewing it. And again, like on the Facebook page of Cinematic Void, there's like five, four to 5,000 like followers or whatever the hell you want to call it. How many of those people were actually in L.A.? Mm-hmm. Maybe half, maybe less than half. And then, you know, Facebook, I feel like all Facebook events are is for people to click like, yeah, I'm going to this event. And then they don't actually show up, which is the most fucking L.A. thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I think they were useful at a point, but then not so much. Just save your money and figure out other ways to promote, you know. Put your money towards like, you know, if you want to book a guest and you live out of town. And that money you would spend on advertising, maybe fly someone out that would actually draw tickets. Spend that money on zebra cakes to throw at the audience. Yes. Do spend your money elsewhere or keep your money. Don't spend it. Invest it. I don't know. But like, yeah, Facebook... Boosting Facebook posts is just a fucking waste of money now. It's just like, they, I will say they were effective for a period. Actually, the only time they're really effective is if you're doing a run of a movie and you have like two weeks to promote it. It's a consistent thing. Like, I'll use the American Cinematheque just did a run of the new restoration of the conversation on 35mm. They ran an ad on it. And it was effective. But they also had multiple shows. If you're doing an ad for a single screening, it kind of gets lost in the thing, especially the way Facebook, Instagram runs their ads. Your ad could be running two days after your fucking show. I saw an ad for a screening on St. Patrick's Day that someone had promoted that ran fucking three days after St. Patrick's Day. So, yeah, that save your money. I think this is a good spot to take a little break, so we're going to go ahead and do that, and when we come back, more film programming talk on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Join our team and be a part of the exciting world of the movies. We currently have part-time and full-time positions available with flexible hours to fit your schedule. Great for teens, senior citizens, and moms looking for interesting and enjoyable work, either part-time or full-time, on weekdays or weekends. We offer competitive wages, periodic wage reviews, a great work environment, and movie passes for you and your family. Applications are available in our lobby. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemanus Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. 
You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We've been talking about the ins and outs of film programming here on the Cinematic Void podcast. And we've talked about things you do before you actually do a screening. Now we're going to talk about what you do once it's time for a screening. So what we're going to talk about here is primarily for screening at a theater. And what I mean by that is like, you know, micro cinema, art house theater, you know, multiplex, drive-in, whatever, whatever you end up using as a venue. Although I don't think multi multiplexes do as many rentals as they used to. Oh, but I do want to say I've definitely, um, back in the day when Exhumed Films, they used to rent a screen at a multiplex called the Hoyts in New Jersey. They did a lot of their rep house stuff there. But that was also the time where a lot of theaters still had 35mm projectors. Which is why we're going to talk about format here. Now, theaters can have a variety of formats. And some might have all these capabilities. Some might only have one of these capabilities. So wherever you're doing screenings at, you got to keep that in mind. So this is not a exhaustive list of things that can be screened, but I think this is a pretty good, you know, general art house list of things that can be screened or projected or whatever. So formats you have, you have 35 millimeter film, you have 70 millimeter film, you have 16 millimeter films, you have DCPs, which stand for digital cinema packages. Some theaters can, you can hook a laptop to the projector and you can show QuickTime MP4 if you have to in a pinch. Sometimes that happens for like maybe film festivals and stuff like that. Now, some of you may be asking, what is a DCP? And we'll both talk about this because part of Nick's job is handling DCPs. Now, what a DCP is, already said, is digital cinema package. And basically, this was the digital format that replaced film projection. You can't replace film projection. You can't. They tried. <laughs> but, you know, let's talk about, like, Nick works print traffic. So what is your relationship with DCPs? Um, they're a pain in my ass. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're a pain in my ass, and people don't really want to see them as much. Um, I don't know. I, it's just, you know... I just have to chase them around a bunch. You know, we, we, we do show, um, we probably show a third of, of our screenings are, are probably DCPs. I would say, yeah. I think that's, that's accurate. Yeah. A and, third. and just so people know, what does a DCP look like? Oh, okay. So it's like a, it, it looks just like a, a computer drive that you would, you know, that it, it looks like it would just like slide into a computer. I don't mm -hmm. know. It's something it's, it looks very, it looks like the shit that I would see at like my uncle's house in the eighties when I like didn't know a damn thing about a computer when computers were just like a bunch of crap laying around in your nerd uncle's house. <laughs> <laughs> well, the drive the drives you're referring to, and this is usually drives that come from like studios or like through studios like places like Deluxe. Deluxe mm -hmm. is right. like, you know. Now sometimes you can you'll just receive like a little uh like an actual like small hard drive from uh, from like a studio in France or something like that that's not sending a DCP. Like most major studios, it's going to come from, like Jim said, a place called Deluxe. And uh, I mean, they 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 handle a lot of films. I mean, there's this crazy output over there. So I, I deal with them quite a bit. You know, we, we 
show. I mean, I'm probably juggling around like over a hundred DCPs a month, you know? And, uh, yeah, they're just, they're just got to in and out and you send them back real quick and they're, you have to unlock them with a thing called a KDM or a key. Um, it's probably digital management. What is it? What does KDM stand for, Jim? I bet you. Uh, know. Actually, don't know what KD. It's like basically, I don't can't remember what KDM. Yeah, maybe stands. we'll just cut this out then. No, we'll leave it in <laughs> because like these idiots don't even know what we could Google it right now. I certainly have in the past. But basically, what basically <laughs> it's the key that unlocks the DCP. So you could the, get it. The D- key to digital management. That's what it stands for. Yeah, actually, I think you're right. So, <laughs> so basically, when you you can. You plug the DCP into a computer and ingest, but you can't play it unless you have the key. And the key unlocks the DCP, usually for a time window. Mm-hmm. Now, most of the times you want to be able to tech check and stuff. So studios will grant you like, you know, maybe a two-day window. Sometimes it's only two hours. They get sometimes, And even if it's an old film, like sometimes it's kind of weird about it. They're very protective of these little windows and I, I do get it and I understand why, but it's still just sometimes it's a pain in my ass. Yeah, because <laughs> because sometimes you will have multiple keys for the same movie, especially if it's a new film. They'll give you a key so you have a window to tech check and that closes, then you give another key to the same DCP so you can do the screening. And, you know, this is supposed to make things easier, but I think we've had more times we've gotten burned with DCP problems and film projection. Yeah, we're just well, you know, we're we're uh, we're theaters that only screen. It's we don't screen all day. We don't screen every day. So you know, one of our theaters does, but the other one doesn't, and not so. Sometimes you you have a very you also have a small window of when your projectionist is there to test. Yeah. So it it just ends up being this whole juggling act of when I have these the windows open and when's the projectionist gonna be there. So I, I'm have to be worried about scheduling and everything like that. Like there's a whole number of things on my plate in order to get this done. Yeah. And there's also been times that like you Not get, that I'm doing the scheduling. But I'm just you know worried about it. Yeah. You're you have to deliver something, make sure you have the KDM to unlock the DCP at a certain time. There's been times where, like, you know, sometimes you get DCPs from other countries and they're on different time zones. Mm-hmm. And that's been a problem. Yeah. Because they might accidentally set the time to 7 p.m. their time in, like, France or Spain, and you need it for 7 p.m. Los Angeles. So you go to play the movie and it's fucking locked. If you're, if you're not testing until the day of in the first place and something is wrong with either the DCP or the KDM, like say there's something wrong with the KDM and I need to get in touch with folks in France, what's 4 a.m. when it's like, I, I think it's like 4 a.m. when it's 9 p.m. here, something like that, you know what I mean? So you're you're having to try to call someone or email them and they're sleeping. Yeah. They can't help you. Yeah. <laughs> Your screening is going to happen. You're fucking screwed. Yeah, so that's just something to think about. But then there's also other ways that you can get DCPs. They can, some... Some companies will just send you a download link. And DCPs are large files. They run like anywhere from like 100 gigabytes to as high as I've seen them high as like 250 gigabytes. They're pretty sizable. So that's also part because then you have to download it and you have to put it on a drive. And usually it's just a standard hard drive that you can get from like Target or whatever. Like a portable hard drive. Just plug it in, download it on that. Make sure it's unzipped and all that kind of shit. So, but we want to talk about DCPs because, you know, there's a lot of art houses and rep cinema across the country that don't have film projectors because at a certain point, you know, studios moved away from it. And then they've sort of moved 
back in, but not fully. They're kind of in between. It's kind of like how you know records, vinyl, had a resurgence. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's like, this shit's dead. But no, it's like now you have two formats. You have the best analog format, which is records, vinyl. And you have digital, which is the same as iTunes, the screen your movie, which is DCP. Kind of weird how the amount of music metaphors cross-pollination is going on here. Mm-hmm. So that's something to keep in mind. Like if you're at a venue that only does DCP, and again, this is going to come up a little bit more. So let's talk about film and film projectors. So there's a couple ways you can show film. You can do changeover projectors or a platter. What do I mean by changeover? Basically, a changeover projector is you have two projectors. You have one and two. You have real one on one and real two on the other. And a projectionist manually has to start and do the changeover from real one to two. And it is an art form. Mm-hmm. Because I've been to screenings where projectionists have missed the changeover cues. And you'll if you've ever seen 35mm prints, I guess Fight Club is has this thing where they show you where the fucking, like... They call them cigarette burns, but they're just, you know, the changeover cues. Mm-hmm. You get two. You get one to start start the projector, and you have one to hit the actual changeover. And if you fuck up the first one, the second one's already fucked. Right. Because there's a motor warm-up. Mm-hmm. Like, basically, that's what they're accounting for, because those projectors have to be in sync. And if the changeover gets missed, you start seeing leader, you get fucking soundtrack pops, you know, that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Those can happen. Now, before DCPs, a lot of theaters, to save money, would get a thing called a platter. And what a platter is, it's a big thing. You build the film up, you cut the heads and tails off your 35mm prints, which is the leader, and you splice them together, and you build up a big, just film. The Mm -hmm. film is all together on one giant thing you run on a platter. Platters are fucking awful. Platters are responsible for some of the most ungodly damage to films. Mm. Because no matter how you splice it, usually you can always tell you're watching a platter, a print that's been plattered. Because at the heads and tails, where like the where the changeover would be, you'll see a bunch of scratches and noise. Those are called platter burns. Mm-hmm. Because usually where the splice is at, because it's taped on, it's not like as tight, so they catch damage. I've seen beautiful film prints that you start seeing fucking noise pop up and scratches. You're like that. That's been plattered. Well, as we've we've talked about this in a previous episode, but uh, a lot of the the studios that we deal with here, um, they send someone out to inspect your booth to make sure that you don't, for one, have a platter mechanism, um, and they also just make sure that your projection in general is just clean and that you're not going to mess up their prints. Yeah, um, it's, not, so. it's not really studios. It's more like the archives and stuff, like oh, okay. the academy and UCLA and stuff like. Your booth has to be approved before they mm-hmm. loan you prints. I'm, I'm surprised that the studio wouldn't also be well, concerned about that. <laughs> well, studios aren't sending people out. Gotcha. Studi- but studios have different standards. Like, you know, there's certain studios that don't give a shit if you platter it. They okay. Just, yeah. But then there's, you know, stuff like Universal, which has it in their contract that you do not remove the heads and tails. Okay. And if you violate that, you do not get the book prints with them anymore. Same with Academy and all that. Like, there are specific rules. Mm-hmm. But the two I know that will come out, they'll fly across the country, inspect your booth. Yeah, yeah. Is the Academy 
and UCLA. Which I do remember them coming in and inspecting when we were getting set up. Yeah, at Lost Fields 3. They had to, before they would loan us a print, mm-hmm. they had to come in the booth, check it out, check the projectors and all that. Because there's been people that have tried to book prints. They're like, cool, we'll book you a print as soon as you let us take a look at your booth. Mm-hmm. And they're like, uh, no. What if there's a huge service fee for sending somebody out to even take a look? Um, or is that just that they do that as a courtesy before they loan? I don't know. That I, that I don't know because yeah. obviously here we're local, mm-hmm. but they probably there is probably some kind of cost and like, you know, having access because like you know Academy and UCLA have like prints you can't get anywhere else. You know. Oh yeah. And outside of those, you know, archives and studios and getting thirty-five millimeter prints, you also have private collectors. Mm-hmm. These are people that like own vast collections of film prints. Some of them store their prints at the archives. So in order to use someone's print, you're going to have to go through an archive. And some private collectors have their own storage space. So now you know what format you can screen a movie off of. It's time to book your screening. And here's some things you need to know. You need to be able to clear rights. This is very important. And we talked about this earlier with the bar private screening stuff. Although not 100% accurate, IMDb is a great place to start, especially for studio films. Because, you know, studio films rarely drop out. There, there have been. Usually if a studio has a pickup film from a production, they only have rights for a certain amount of time. And actually, we've been at that point where we've, I've seen movies that were like owned by like American International Pictures and stuff like no longer fall under that copyright and go back to their producers. Okay. So it does happen, but you know, and this, and if you're working with a, a movie theater, the more information you know about what you want to screen, the more they're going to like you. Because mm-hmm. if you can tell them like, hey, this this movie's with this studio, um, I've seen they shown like someone screen a 35 millimeter print. I don't know if they have it, but I'm friends with this person that has a private collector. He has a print. If we can get that, if they don't have a print, the more information you have. The more you make it easier for someone to book your film, mm-hmm. the more they're going to like you and the more they're going to want to work with you. Definitely. Now, most studios, well, I must say, there's studios like Paramount, Sony, and Universal who have their own bookers and their own archives. Individual studios. Although, you can talk about a little bit about this, like where you pick up prints from, like Paramount, Sony, or Universal. I mean, some of that seems to be changing, but like for for instance, like Universal, you actually pick it up on the uh, they have their own archive on their lot, um, and you've gotten stuck behind the tram tour while picking up prints. Oh, every time, <laughs> 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 almost every time for sure, and yeah, sometimes they take a while. Mostly they're trucking along though, you know. But sometimes when they stop, you just gotta, you, you just, just gotta you wait. Just gotta wait, man. They're, they're going by like, hey, this is the lake where they shot some of the creature from Black Lagoon. It's like, guess what I got in the back of the truck, motherfuckers? The 35 millimeter print. Right. This is the giant statue of uh, Ted holding a martini, <laughs> which is really that exists on the uh, oh, on the Universal lot. <laughs> Minions. Minions. Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, some studios don't book anymore, and some of it's changed recently. Warner Brothers used to you used to book their prints through them, but they kind of handed off, handed off their rep title bookings to a company called park circus mm-hmm. park circus before then 
basically handles the MGM library, which is a very vast library. So now they, they actually control the Warner archive, which is kind of funny because if you know anything about film history, any MGM title before, I think, 1981 or 2, that's actually MGM produced, Warner Brothers owns. Okay. So now it's funny that the whole MGM library is back together, mm-hmm. at least rep cinema-wise. Okay. Park Circus, I think, at different points also did booking for Miramax and things like that, at least rep stuff. The reason why I kind of single out MGM, not because of their classic stuff, but because after their main library was sold, they were picking up stuff like United Artists, Canon Film Group, you know, Orion Pictures. So there's a lot of genre stuff in there. So it's like, you know, obviously a lot of Charles Bronson movies and Canon stuff, you know, RoboCop, Terminator, like... Lots of, like, crowd pleasers are in that MGM library. Hell yeah. And stuff like, you know, I'd say Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3. And, like, just, there's a lot of shit. So, it, the Park Circus has a lot of stuff that I like the book, you know. That's why I'm kind of singling them out. On a smaller scale, but equally important, there's also ACVA, which is the American Genre Film Archive. And if you haven't picked up this book yet, I'm going to re- recommend picking it up because it kind of talks about how AGFA came to be, but it's more specifically about Alamo Draft House's Weird Wednesdays. It's a book called Warped and Faded by Lars Nielsen, which, you know, talks about how, like, they acquired all these prints and they were screening them, and because they had all these prints, they had to build an archive. Mm -hmm. And besides AGFA's, like, you know, archive of 35mm and 16mm prints, in recent years, thanks to you know, friend of the Void, Brett Berg, who worked for AGFA, he started consolidating a lot of the boutique labels that had theatrical rights on stuff under you know, AGFA's, like, you know, umbrella. So they handle booking for labels like Severin, Vinegar mm-hmm. Syndrome, Arrow, stuff like that. Yeah. And you can go online and you can look up AGFA and their theatrical distribution. You, they, they, they don't have their 35-millimeter list publicly. You have to email them, and they'll probably ask a bunch of questions. And maybe not visit your booth, but mm-hmm. want to make sure before they loan you a print that you're not going to fuck it up. Yeah. But, you know, you can go online and see the ACFA theatrical DCP list. And it's pretty vast. And I think if you're looking to book, you know, do things like Cinematic Void, it's a great resource. Because they have different, you know, they look at things of like the size of the venue Mm -hmm. and, you know, what format you can show it in. And if they have rights, like they have different price ranges. So the the majority of the the void DCPs definitely come from from AGFA. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I forgot the man. They also control. The prints come from one guy and the DCPs come from AGFA. I'm not saying who the guy is, but. No, I mean, you know, we, we, I mean, the Cinematech in general books a lot with AGFA Mm because AGFA also controls. Or not controls, so they work with Shout Factory, Screen yeah. Factory, oh, and yeah. stuff. When, so there's when like, we get weird with just the Cinematech in general as yeah. well. Yeah, because like there's but, things like Living in Oblivion or like mm-hmm. random Cassavetti movies that Agfa controls rights on. Totally. So it's a good resource, and you can see the catalog, and you see, okay, like I want to show some Italian zombie movies. Guess what? Agfa's got a shit ton of them. <laughs> I want to like when I was working with um Central Cinema in Knoxville, like the guy primarily because one reason why I kind of like signed off on, like, you know, expanding January Giallo down there is because I looked at what he was booking. He was booking a lot of ACFA titles. So it's like, okay, this guy gets it and understands. And, like, he just basically sent me a list of, like, you know, this is one thing about showing, and I just signed off on it because 
basically it's like, oh shit, you're playing things I was going to suggest anyway, so you know what the fuck you're doing. Yeah. So, Agfa, great, great resource. Especially if you're looking to do small-scale stuff and just want to show crowd-pleasing movies. They might not be like, you know, the big studio horror of like Alien, Exorcist, Carrie, or any of that kind of shit, but like, you know, starting out on your level and you want to show cult cinema, Agfa's a great resource. Easy to work with, you know, and, you know, if you can't show a DCP and you can only show a Blu-ray, they'll work with you that way too. So, that's something that you might want to look into, like, depending on what venue you're at. Now, let's talk about the cost. And this is another Midnight Dave question. Regarding booking fees, what is the best way to negotiate percentages, if at all? I've been told the fee versus 30 or 40% of the house is preferred, but I've only been able to get the fee versus 50%. Are there any tactics for bargaining? Well, typically, you're looking at a, f- a fee which is a guarantee. Mm-hmm. Again, we can go back to the band metaphor here. It's like you want to book a band. They have a guarantee that you have to pay them no matter who shows up the show. And if the you make more money at the door, they get a percentage of that. Mm-hmm. So the fee is a guarantee. And the fee usually runs anywhere from 100 bucks and can go as high as like 500 on average. Mm-hmm. Normally, they sit in the 250 to 350 range. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then typically the number is 35% of the box office. So all the fee is is that that's what you have to pay no matter what. And if the box office makes more than that, then you pay more. So whatever is higher is what you're paying the studio or the rights holder. Right. Now, there are also exceptions to the 35% standard. So when you book double features, usually the percent gets split in half, so it's 17.5%. That's usually because you're working with two separate studios doing a double feature. You're showing like... You're showing a Park Circus title, and you're showing a title from Sony. So you're splitting. You can't you can't give them both 35% because then you're giving them 70 per, 70% of your box office, which means you're losing your ass. So do they do they push back against uh, double features, or they kind of they they don't mind making less money? They no. Nah, I mean, the thing is, double features means that they're probably gonna. There's a good chance they'll make more money anyway. And but the the guarantee's the same. Got it. So the fee is like if one's like three fifty versus seventeen and a half is what it becomes, or two fifty or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I mean, they'll probably I, they I don't know if necessarily they'll get less money. They'll probably get about the same at the end of the day, or the guarantee goes up higher because they have to. They're doing less of a percentage, right? Things like that. But that's a common thing, and then I've seen for triple features you can go to like twelve percent. So it's like 36% of the box office or sometimes like 11 and a half. I don't know, weird fucking numbers. Right. I've seen it broken down and like most studios are cool with that. There's also studios that aren't cool with that. And, you know, if that's the case. You just can't do that film as a double feature mm-hmm. or on a triple feature. Right on. Okay. It, it's rare, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. Now, in regards of, you know, someone asking for 50% of the box office, the only times I've really ever seen it is like usually self-distributors that have one or two films and that's it mm-hmm. like the biggest example is tommy wiseau in the room he wants 50 percent. yeah and you have to clean up the spoons afterwards yeah so <laughs> it's a lot of work and um dawn of the dead is 50 percent of the box office and they also have a pretty high guarantee i think it's like a thousand bucks versus 50 mm-hmm. percent. 
which if you ever wonder why that movie doesn't play a lot, it's just, you know, you'll make money. Like, if you screen Dawn of the Dead, people are going to come out. But, like, it's also, like, that's, it's an unbudged number. That's just what it is. Right. I probably need more context for Dave here. I don't know who's offering you 50%, if it's, like, a studio or distributor or just a producer on a film. I mean, here's ways you can look at to negotiating. And this comes back to building relationships. As you book and screen stuff, you're going to build a relationship with a distributor or an individual or producer, whoever you're ended up paying or whoever, you know, whoever ends up getting paid for the screening. And things you can use to negotiate is you could ask for a flat fee. Usually you can get a flat fee if you're like really friendly with a distributor or if you say you're screening a movie in like a hundred or fifty seater theater, you know, where there's like there's a lot of overhead and not a lot of profit coming in. They might be just like, yeah, I just pay us 200 bucks. That's cool. Usually when you see flat fees, it's for marathons because when you get over three films, how do you break up 35%? Because it gets that messy. I think most studios are like, yeah, just give us like 250 to 350 per title. That's just, I mean, that's just the standard for most like marathons. But there are cases that people will like, you know, all right, we'll give you a flat fee on this screening. But if you screen this film, we want a percentage. And they might ask for a higher percentage on like a bigger title. Say like, I'm not saying this is true for Universal. I'm just using an example. So say you want to show Roller Coaster, which isn't a big title. And like, hey, can we get a flat fee? Yeah, we'll give you a flat fee for Roller Coaster. And like, we're also going to screen Jaws. It's like, okay, well, since we're doing flat on Roller Coaster, Mm -hmm. we'll ask for a higher percentage on Jaws, which we know is going to make more money because it's fucking Jaws. I I got a weird question for you. So... Are any of the, you know, maybe a smaller studio or something, but like, is anyone ever particular about like a protective? Like, say, if you're like, oh, I wanted to screen Roller Coaster and Jaws, but like the people that own the rights for Jaws were like, sorry, we don't, you can't screen that with Roller Coaster because that takes away from, like, what I mean is like, oh, they don't yeah. like the particular film that it's playing with and the, the image that it would create or something. You know, it's, it's only come up once, and it wasn't because of the image. It's because the person wanted the lion's share of the box office. They just wanted the film to stand on its own, and that so that's when they don't want it to be a double feature. Yeah. You know, they can kind of insist it. Oh, it's maybe it's the money thing or something. But yeah, because really, yeah, it becomes a real thing. Like you know, there are. I mean, shit. Disney let me book Hocus Pocus and Lords of Salem. And that's yeah, that's kind of why I ask. Is like, is anyone particular about that sort of thing when you get real funky with it? Nah, they 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 all like money at the end of the day. Yep. And before, in speaking of Hocus Pocus, that reminded us something that I forgot. It's like there, if you're booking films at non-traditional venues, usually you don't work through a studio. You work for another organization, like you know the educational department. There's a company called Swank, which I'm pretty sure you've dealt with. Mm-hmm. Swank, I think, handles Disney and Fox titles now. And they have their own 35 millimeter prints that are separate from, like, the Fox or Disney archives and things like that. Mm-hmm. But they're usually for, like, non-traditional theaters. You know, they're not for multiplexes or, like, you know, they'll sometimes book for art house. It, it's a weird thing. So I know there, for, for a few years, Cinematech never booked with Swank, and now we book a lot with Swank. Mm-hmm. Just one of those things. Just... Throwing that in there before I forget. Now, we've already been talking about the cost of doing a screening, but this is really the real cost of, you know, what it takes to do, you know, put on a show or screen a film. So, just for example, we're just going to do a single feature from a studio. 
So let's say you want to book 80s horror classic from Studio B. They want 250 versus 35%, which is kind of standard. You know, give or take 100 bucks on the guarantee fee. Now, here are some variables that you can run into. You have the choice between their 35mm print or a DCP. Or they only have a DCP, which means you can screen a 35mm print if they don't have one, which means you have to book through a archive or a private collector. Mm-hmm. Or they don't allow that. There are studios that don't let you use private collector prints and... Usually they'll let you do an archive print, but sometimes they get weird about it. So there's some quality control there yeah. as far as the print goes. Yeah. But like, you know, some studios just specifically say we don't allow ah. pri- private collector prints. Gotcha. Occasionally they make exceptions. There was, <clears throat> can't think offhand, there was one time they said, well, if you can find a print the screen, that's fine. Normally we don't allow it. Now, so I, I want to I be clear about this. So when you when a studio says, yeah, we can get you the DCP, or there is actually just the 35, like right down the road, you can go grab. Or do you actually have to pay extra money for the film print? Depends on the studio. It really depends. Because, like, you know, there's... I don't want to call out... Because you, you have to pay the cost for the DCP, and the DCP shipping and all that stuff. Yeah. That's all built into the cost. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like... Because, like, you work print traffic, and we're, we're going to talk the difference between local pickup, obviously, right. and having shit shipped is like you can go pick up a dcp well actually no you're just getting shit sent from deluxe yeah they 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 just ship to us but uh but sometimes you know sometimes something's in a rush something you have to go pick it up i mean that's all i mean cost you know it all it all costs at the end of the day but like you know studio will give you options and sometimes like it might cost more to book the 35 i know there's a distributor that it actually costs more to book the dcp Mm mm-hmm because it's their new restoration and like they're pushing that more. Right. You know, it, it happens. And it's like sometimes not even for any rhyme or reason. Like, you know, they, but most of the time, regardless of what the format is from the studio, the fees the, exa- the same. Mm-hmm. The guarantee's the same. Now, here's another variable that could happen. This is great. You can screen your film, but we only have 35 millimeter print. The only problem is the place you're doing your screening can only do DCPs. So, what are your options? usually comes down to showing a blu-ray right but and most studios are okay with that but then there are studios that say absolutely not yeah and that means that screening's dead then occasionally you run into a studio that has rights but they have no print no dcp and no clue where to find it exactly <laughs> and this this has come up a few times mm-hmm. like that i have to deal with so your options are you could book a print from archive or a private collector if it's available, or you could screen the Blu-ray. Is a, if a private collector stuff? Is that also something that kind of comes along with building relationships, or is, is that kind of like gate kept in a way, or it, or is just are are they also just as print collectors are they out for money? I mean, it's a weird thing because like basically print collectors usually print collectors also do screenings Mm -hmm. so it's again relationship building it's like you know i know a lot of private print collectors i'm friendly with a lot of them i shouldn't say i know a lot personally but you know and and are some are some print collectors want nothing to do with screenings like they just want to hoard the prints for themselves and you can't you can't borrow them i'm gonna bring up examples so there's a canon movie crazy fucking sci-fi musical called the apple Mm-hmm. that came out in the 80s. Years ago at Cinefamily, 
they did a screening of the apple and they found a print that was a longer cut Mm -hmm. just in the MGM vaults that Park Circus had. It was incredible. I think it was Scorpion releasing through Kino. We're going to go put that version out on Blu-ray. It would be the first time I ever went to, you know, be on Mm Blu-ray. They went and booked the print to do a scan. Turns out someone switched prints. Oh, wow. So some private collector who's an obvious shitbag, stole the print of the Apple mm-hmm. for their own personal collection so no one else can see it and replaced it with another print they already had. But I, I, there's a paper trail, isn't there? Like, why, well, you know, can't they backtrack this and go? But here's the problem. You would have to go through all these archival screenings of the Apple mm-hmm. to figure it out. I think they know who did it. I don't know if it's ever been resolved. Right. But... But, you know, this isn't a one-time occurrence. Like, motherfuckers are out there doing this shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, like, I wonder if, you know, people do get caught and, and what are the repercussions. And... I mean, if you if you fuck with prints from a studio or archive or whatever, you lose your privilege. Yeah. And I'm not saying most private collectors, like, basically, they want to share their prints because they want people to see it. And they're just like, yeah, it's cool that I own, like, Chopping Mall and, you know, sleep you know Sleepaway Camp or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's, you know buddy phil over the new bev has both of those prints mm-hmm. he just wants people to see them you know but like you know there's other there's another side of collecting where there's like this is mine and mine only i mean you know the way that we even collect records and and blu-rays like sometimes you want that thing that no one else can get like it's literally i'm the only person that has this test pressing of this record yeah and it's like yeah it's mine and you can't have it you exactly can't, you can't borrow it yeah but the other thing is like Whoever took that Apple print was an absolute dickhead because For sure. it's not yours. You just fucking <laughs> stole it. Yeah. I mean, there's been times we've gotten prints where, like, private collector. A lot of private collectors started out as projectionists. Mm-hmm. And you can always tell because there's two instances I want to mention. I think I've already mentioned them on the podcast, but I'm going to do it again. We showed an IB Tech print of the Wicker Man. Mm-hmm. IB Tech usually means, like, if it's the 70s, IB Tech has the best color, best-looking print. There was a segment, only a segment of the Wicker Man that was vinegar that had gone bad. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the film was fine. It was like cut in. And I made a joke when we were doing the tech check to see what was up with that vinegar spot. I was like, I bet you some fucking projectionist stole the fucking naked dance from the Wicker Man. Yep. You know what was stolen? The only thing missing, huh? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was there, but someone had a bad print and stole the section and put it in their print. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, it's like, obviously, most theaters, reputable theaters, do print reports on their prints. They mention the condition and all that. Mm-hmm. So, and they and a lot of studios require that you send your print report. Oh, yeah. So, you can mention, like, hey, this print was very spicy. Because sometimes you want to find out if someone's fucked up your print. Some studios want that print report before the screening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm going to use another example here. I didn't finish the second example of, like, the other example I was going to talk about was ET and 70 millimeter, where someone stole the fucking ET autopsy scene mm-hmm. from a pretty pristine 70 millimeter and put in a faded Eastman section of the ET autopsy scene. Yeah, and because it was faded, it made it fucking creepier and weirder than Hell it needed yeah. to be. Does anyone ever splice in stuff from other films? I think they have. Yeah. I, I haven't been to any screenings where I've seen it, but like mm-hmm. I, I'm sure it's happened. Yeah. So they get back to print reports and why they're important. Years ago, before it was totally destroyed in a shipping thing, mm-hmm. because that's another thing that happened. When you're shipping prints, sometimes they don't make it. Yeah. And shipping has killed 
They killed a really good print of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 781. They also killed Roadhouse before Roadhouse met its untimely demise. Mm-hmm. We did a screening for St. Patrick Swayze Day, which is the thing Grant would do at the Cinematheque every mm-hmm. St. Patrick's Day. We were showing Roadhouse. We get the print. All the heads and tails are off the reels. Mm-hmm. They're just floating in there randomly. So you don't know what reel is what. Oh, shit. So the projectionist had to go through and watch while watching the Blu-ray and playing the reel to figure out which reel was reel one, oh, two, no. three. That's awful. Yeah. And <laughs> we had to send that print report and let, you know, Park Circus know that whoever last had this print, because mm-hmm. clearly anyone else would have booked it, wouldn't have done it. So chances are it was some dickhead that fucking had a platter and platter together and then just half-ass put it back. Got it. I mean, we showed it on 35 millimeter, and that was probably one of the last times because shortly after someone else booked it and didn't make it back. Some archives just send you prints in a cardboard, taped up in a cardboard box. Like it's literally just in there. You know, there's some stuffing and whatever, but like, I hate it. It's just, that's the worst. That's the worst because you can't, and then I just have to like tape it up and send it off. Like, best wishes, man. Yeah. I hope you get that, you know, but like there are other like boxes that are made to ship prints in that are wonderful. And, Thank you to everyone that just sends prints to me in those. Now, let's talk about booking with an archive versus booking with a private collector. Mm -hmm. Archives have a lead time to prepare prints because they go through and they do their inspection before they send it to you. And they have requirements on how the print is returned, how the print is treated, etc. Other archives like UCLA and the Academy, you have to have lead time. You have to know what you're showing months in advance in order Mm -hmm. to secure print. And there's some limitations like, UCLA and Academy only allowed a certain amount of bookings per month. Mm-hmm. Occasionally they'll go over, but like if you constantly ask, they'd be like, nope. Yeah, totally. Like uh, the Academy, for instance, like because of the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic has affected a lot of how this stuff works and, and a lot of the, the, uh, the archives have just had a, a much lesser staff. So, you know, the Academy, they either just aren't lending out prints because they don't have the staff to lend out prints. You know, so there's a lot of that kind of thing going on, and we've had to deal with that the last few months. So as we're all just getting back to normal here, I guess, right? I don't know. Yeah. But, but just meaning, like, this is part of the conversation because this is still what we're having to deal with right now, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. So when you're booking with a private collector, you know, you know, archives may or may not charge you a fee. It just depends on the archive. Private collectors are definitely going to charge you to use their print. Okay. And... Usually private collectors aren't local, which means shipping Mm -hmm. and getting prints shipped and making sure they arrive on time. So this is going to be very Nick heavy in this little section as we talk about print traffic and associated costs. So Nick picks up a lot of prints locally because we're in Los Angeles. There's archives here. There's studios here. So we don't have to deal with shipping. But then you have prints shipped to you and all that. And can you just give a ballpark of how much it costs to get a print ship cost cross country from the East coast to here? Well, the, the real catch is number one, it's, it's basically like known across the board. If you're shipping prints, don't ship with you, uh, UPS. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Sorry, UPS, but like the, the film industry has abandoned UPS because they, they lost too many film prints over the years. Um, but we, so we typically ship with FedEx, um, and and the thing about it is you have to be really careful um you don't you don't want it you don't want a film print like lingering around the country for a week so like pretty much anything you ship 
you want to you want to send it like today you want to send it express you want to get it there fast because you're dealing with climate and you and just again it just being in someone else's hands for too long it just like it just the, it just has the ability to get lost and it's the last thing you want so you just want to get them there quick uh and so that's fucking expensive man so like jim saying you know it's going to cost you 200 250 or more just to book the print and get the rights to to uh screen it but then if you're having to have it shipped from new york or maybe you're having a ship from la to your screening on the east coast like it's going to cost you another 250 dollars just to get the damn thing and send it back so and if you're if you're looking at a private collectors on top of it, it's like not only do you owe the studio at least 250 to 350 guaranteed mm-hmm. you're paying 250 dollars to ship it and then if you're doing a private collector, you're paying another $250 on top of that. And we have a discounted rate with FedEx because we ship so much with them. You know what I mean? Like a lot of, a lot of people do when you're doing this a lot. But yeah. It's, it's still expensive. It's, it's quite expensive. Yeah. So before, not even counting paying like staff projections, anything like that, if you're doing a private collector print, it's shipping cross country and you have to pay rights on it, you're looking at $750 before it even hits the projector before a piece of popcorn is made yeah and that's the cost and like you know even shipping dcps yeah that's lesser and yeah you can go you know via the internet and do downloads and stuff and you know dcps i guess are sort of cheaper but they have their own issues too Mm -hmm. but again you're gonna you're gonna get more of an audience we're gonna get more of an audience here if we're screening 35 than screening a dcp and like that's obviously known yeah so like sometimes you want to pay that extra money just to just to get people to come out Exactly. So now you kind of know what the cost is, which is again, going back to the beginning of like when you approach a theater about doing a screening series, keep in mind who's footing the bill. Because when you're saying, Hey, I want to show horror classic number 10 or whatever, there's a cost that to make it happen. And if you're not fronting the cost, the theater's fronting the cost. So it, I know a lot of people don't want to talk about the financial end, but like film programming, there is a bit to it. Sometimes you can like, you know, you're doing stuff for the love of cinema. That's great, but you can't do it all the time. So if you're doing a film series, keep in mind that like you're probably before your movie screens, there's already like thousands, like almost a thousand dollars spent mm-hmm. before anything actually happens. So, you know, keep that. That, I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to be a downer or anything like that, but that's just the reality. It's fucking expensive to exhibit 35 millimeter prints. And while it's not as expensive to do DCPs, there's still a lot of costs. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, more film programming talk on the Cinematic Void podcast. Hey, kids, how would you like to hear this on the screen instead of the great show you came to see? That's what you sound like. Honest. Please cooperate and do your part in keeping this theater quiet so everyone, including you, can enjoy it. I remember lots of adults and kids, too, paid admission to enjoy the show. We must insist on absolute quiet. I have seen the dark shadows moving in the woods, and I have no doubt that whatever I have resurrected is sure to come calling for me. They got up on the wrong side of the grave. Evil Dead from New Line Cinema. Starts Friday at these theaters. Check your newspaper for times. 
Nobody has more fun than the last American Virgin. Me? It's about hope. Tonight can really be the big night. And dreams. The highs and lows. You're not going to get anything from me. The ups and downs of growing up. The Last American Virgin. A comedy about friendship, love, and everything in between. The Last American Virgin. See it or be it. From now playing at theaters and drive-ins near you. Now, let's talk about the actual screening here. So, how are you presenting the movie at the theater? You know, there's people that are film programmers who don't actually go to any of the screenings because they're doing so many screenings, they usually leave it for the theater staff to handle. I don't, I think most rep cinemas do this, and I know, you know, things like the Arclight here would do it, but like, you know, maybe across the country there's not a lot of people doing intros, you know. L.A., you know, people introduce screenings. Right, they have like Robert Pattinson come out for Batman screenings in the valley. Yes, shit like that. But, like, you know, it's... At, like, AMC. At AMC. Well, I mean, that's all promotion or whatever. Yeah. But, like, you know, if you go to the New Bev, someone's introducing the movies and talking about their calendar. You go to the Arrow, you have a manager. When it's a cinematic voice show, I'm introducing the screening. If you're a programmer and it's your series, are you introducing your screening? Is the movie just going to play? Things to think about. You know, you might be at a venue that doesn't have a microphone anyway, so you can't do an introduction. And the other thing on top of it at the screening is, do you have talent? Are you doing a Q&A? Again, if you're in L.A., it's easier to book guests because they live and work here. You know, but if you're somewhere else across the country, you're going to probably have to fly someone out and that cost. So that's a different thing to look at. But let's keep it just fundamentally. I'm only mentioning it because, like, this is what goes into a screening, what you got to think about. But probably for a lot of you, they're going to start your screenings. If you get guests, my guess is going to be that you're going to get them through if they're at a convention that's near where you're doing your screening and you can work something out like that. Or, you know, they're doing an appearance somewhere and you can work it out that way. Or the theater you're working with has a budget for that and they, they can make it happen that way. But probably for most of you, at least starting out, doing Q&As, talent, that kind of stuff is not really the most important thing on the radar. But it's worth just putting a pin in it for future. Now, this is another question from Midnight Dave, and this is, I think, based on something I said on the last episode of the podcast, which is, you've mentioned in the past how you try to make Cinematic Void an experience instead of just another way to see movies. What approaches did you take Did you take when first establishing such experiences? Have they changed over time? Generally, what has worked best and what hasn't? To answer this, basically, I want the second you step into the theater, you are in the void. Flat out. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not like you're just walking in to watch like movie trivia and shit like that. And ways I do that is, I mean, the biggest way is the curated pre show. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're on Patreon, you've seen the things that I end up playing in the theater. And I wasn't the first person to do this. You know, Draft House made pre shows. And I remember Exhumed Films would do on film like trailer reels and like, you know, little snipes is what they call them, like those little ads and things like that. They would put together like intermission shows before the movie went on. And I took, you know, more for Exhumed Films because I didn't have a draft house near me in Maryland at the time. Mm -hmm. But the other inspiration I had was, you know, working on a WNUF Halloween special and being obsessed with VHS tapes and commercial reels. And, you know, basically when I do my pre-shows, it's a lot of commercials themed around whatever movie I'm showing. And occasionally I'll throw in trailers, weird clips. Like basically I'm just packaging together something that sets the tone for the evening 
That's why it's the pre-show. Mm-hmm. I custom build these, and when I do like a what I what I've been doing now for since we've been doing monthly, you know, monthly Monday screenings, and they're a theme. It's just one pre-show a month that covers the theme of the month. Mm-hmm. But you know, before that, when I was doing individual shows, there'd be individual pre-shows for those screenings, and sometimes material would you know be reused. Like every time I was doing like a Valentine's Day screening, I'd use probably pretty much the same reel each time. Because, you know, there's also, like, how much new shit's going to pop up. I always go and check, so I, they, they would be upgraded. But normally, holidays and stuff like that, I had pretty set reels that would just be slightly updated. But individual stuff throughout the other shows. Sometimes something's just a banger. Sometimes yeah. you just find a Pat's Dogs. Yeah, Pat's Dogs, Pat's Chili Dogs, which, <laughs> which was only, like, a... Actually, no, I played that in the theater a few times and never got the response until we did the Cinematis movie. But, right on. <laughs> so when I started building these loops, they used to be 20, 30 minutes because we have doors would open an hour before showtime. So I had it set up to play two to three times completely. So at whatever point you came in, there was a chance you would see the full loop. If you were there right at six, you would see it like two to three times. If you came in in the last 20 minutes, you would at least see it once. That's a... Uh... I remember when you first started doing the uh, Cinemadness movie, you would actually, instead of the way you do it now, where you do the host segments uh, kind of like intermittently, uh, when you first started doing it, you were just doing the the pre-show for like 20 minutes, half an hour beforehand, and then the film would start and just kind of play. Yeah. I mean, mean, that was the Wild West because like I basically just went with like, how do I know how, what the, I mean, I basically went with how do I know how to present a show? I just created it as a cinematic void show. I also wasn't very wasn't thinking about an audience outside of LA watching this shit. In terms of like cinematic movie watch changes, like I kind of like felt like I, you know I have an opportunity to do something different. I want to do something different. And actually, it was your suggestion. Like you should do it. Like you know. Yeah, you de- you definitely did not want to at first because I know how much <laughs> fucking work it was. But like, <laughs> but but essentially, what you see in the cinematic movie with the commercial breaks is basically all the stuff. Not all the stuff, but like a majority of that stuff would have been in a walk-in show or a pre-show if I was showing the movie in the theater. And in terms of like how I do reels now, we actually have like a tighter window like of opening and stuff. I I don't think we get the full hour. It's more like 45 minutes, maybe a half hour. So I do more like 10, 15-minute reels. So it's a little tighter, you know, plays two or three times. Of course, if they open right at 6 for a 7 o'clock show, you might see the same reel six times if you're there the whole time. But most, you know, it is what it is. Now, at showtime, I before I hit the stage, always play the Cinematic Void intro video. And it features the song Astros by Detective. And this more or less came about from doing Beyond Fest intro videos. I had previously to Void, I had done some music videos because you were in a band called Kent State. And through you, we became friendly with a band called Detective, which was James Greer from, who used to be in Guided by Voices, and Lola G, who we had on the podcast last year, who went on to be in Death Hags and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And through them, because I was looking to do like more directing and music video stuff, I had done a music video for them. And just been, you know, build again, build a relationship, friendly with people. So when it came to doing the cinematic void thing, I, I asked him, would it be okay if I used the song for an intro? Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of going through and all that, and just Astros was the one that worked. Yeah. And what I wanted to do with this intro video, and I know this might sound redundant because you already have a pre-show setting the tone. You're just setting to the intro video is you're now you're already in the void. 
but now shit's real. Like, it's like, I guess the way I could, it's going to sound like a dumb comparison, but it's like sort of like how Iron Maiden always plays Doctor Doctor by UFO before they begin their set. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's the kickoff, you know? Actually, no, take that back. That's the bad comparison. The pre-show is more like Doctor Doctor or something like that. Mm-hmm. But like, it's more of like, it's usually the first it's it's like Monday night football. Yeah. Maybe that's the better comparison. Not that not that all of a sudden use sports metaphors over music metaphors, but whatever. It's letting you know the show is now started. It's like when Hank Jr. <laughs> says, Are you ready for some football? Are you ready for some <laughs> cinema? <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but I I just felt like the other thing I could do with the cinematic void intro is that if you have no idea what Cinematic Void is, you just happen to go to a screening because you like a film I'm showing. It's basically a manifesto summary of what I screen. Because mm-hmm. when I made it, I went through, it was like, basically it was based on like the list I had worked on. Like, you know, like I said, I worked on like a deck of source. Not really a deck, just Google Doc of like, you know, this is what Cinematic Void is for. These are the kind of movies I want to screen. These are the kind of like, you know, double or triple features I would like to do, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So from that list, I just like took movies that I would like to screen. And I think fit Cinematic Void. I cut in little clips of them in over the song, along with some like you know movie intermission stuff and snipes and things like that. Snipes are just like the little like you know feature presentation, coming attractions kind of like things that they used to play at like drive-ins and movie theaters that were on film. But you know, I I basically built an intro video off of all those things, and when I got done, I was like, wow. This is, you know, exactly what I want to present. And, you know, with few exceptions, that video hasn't changed for the six years. There was a point, year one and two, like for first year at Camp Void, I took that Happy Camper song from Sleepaway Camp 2 and used that as the intro for a little bit because it's like Camp Void's different from Cinematic Void. I did that for a bit. And then around fall, I did a fall intro with another detective covered this French song called Lay Vampire, Mm -hmm. which I cut another one like video based on that and use, you know, that for the intro in the fall. And I think I did that for maybe the first two years. And then like year two of void, there was a same song, but slightly different clips that I did, but it just never felt right. Yeah. And I just kind of went back to the original video because it's like, maybe I just figured out. Yeah. You hit, you hit gold that first time, I think. Yeah. And then it's just like, why am I fucking with it? Just stick to what works. Mm -hmm. But that intro is important because like that's opening the doors you're you know you're already in the void but now the show has started and again my approach to hosting events is you know pretty much how i promote and program my screenings it's like you know it's a punk rock show or it's a metal show or like it's a concert is what it is mm-hmm. and it's kind of hard for me to explain because i'm always on the inside looking out i'm not on the outside looking in so you've been to void screenings like how would you explain the energy the difference between a cinematic void screening and you know a screening at another theater it's it it's just always a bit more exciting than just going to your average screening for sure there there are a few i I guess i would say without putting anybody down there there are few in town that can that can rival the kind of energy and fun that's that's in the air um i think the beyond fest does a great job of of manifesting the same sort of thing and even you know, sometimes Grant at the Cinematheque, it's a little crazy, but, uh, but you have your own kind of built in crowd that comes out too. And everybody, 
kind of know there's a there's an energy there and maybe even an expectation like everybody just knows what the to take a cue from earlier the vibe is and you know so yeah i think it's great and it's translated well at the new theater so yeah man yeah it's it's cool to see you traveling and doing it elsewhere now yeah i mean it's like i haven't done full on like when i did my the screening at the at the coolidge i didn't bring the void intro and all that kind of stuff you didn't throw zebra cakes at them no i didn't do that (laughs) (laughs) but you know i i just i just come in from this different angle it's like you know obviously i used to think you had to do long introductions and talk about the film and i oh all that kind of stuff and the thing i've realized a lot is that even though i think i'm showing a movie that everyone has already seen Mm -hmm. the majority of the audience that's coming to see it for the first time has not right that's why they're there yeah and unlike we just did Halloween two, and that was probably the first time in a long time that like almost everyone there had already seen Halloween two. Mm-hmm. Whereas like everything else I've screened, like definitely since we've reopened and done in theater screenings, but like previous to that, like I would you know I'd go back to that New England nightmare screening of From Beyond and The Mouth of Madness and the The Mist. And, like, I, you know, I was like, eh, these have played a lot. Like, you know, From Beyond played, like, maybe a year ago or something like that. And there's, like, 500 fucking people there, and at least two-thirds, if not more, of that audience hadn't seen any of the fucking movie screen. Mm-hmm. So I just take this approach as, like, you should be excited because you're getting to do something a lot of people don't get to do, which is see a really kick-ass movie, regardless of genre, usually on a film print. You know, quality might vary depending on the era. Right. We, we didn't get into that stuff, and we, we'll save that for another episode about print quality and that kind of thing. But it should be experience. It should be, you know, I can't recreate the experience of, like, going into a theater cold and seeing, like, one of those movies for the first time. Because mm-hmm. regardless if they haven't seen it or not, there's already expectation. Right. You know, it's like, you know, you might have not seen From Beyond, but you're aware of From Beyond, mm-hmm. which is why you're there. So it's just setting the tone, getting people excited to be in a theater for like two, four, maybe six hours, if not more. It cultivates a, a greater sense of community in that in that very tight window of experience of like the 90 minutes that you're there in the theater with a bunch of strangers in the dark. Like there's not a whole lot. You know what I mean? It's like there's not conversation. There's not. But you still end up feeling like this communal sense in the fucking dark. Yeah. Quiet together. I mean, the the thing about the screening is we're all in this together. We're watching this together. And, you know, I've shown rough movies, ugly movies, very exploitive and, you know, not necessarily, you know, some downer movies. But at the same time, it's like I'm showing it for a reason. And, you know, not every movie is going to be fun and exciting, but you should feel in and come in when you leave on the other side. It's like I might not like that movie, but I appreciate the experience of seeing it. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate seeing it with this audience or whatever, you know, which is why like very few, very few and far between I've had issues with like, you know, people talking during the movies or like other things that happen, which I'm not saying they haven't happened in void screenings. They definitely have. But I think it's just at this point, I've cultivated audience. And even when I get people outside the audience, they kind of fall into line sync pretty quick with like the vibe of it. Right, right. Because it's just like, you just set the tone like, this is what this night is. And if you're on board, you're going to have a great time. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, I can't help you. Right. But sink into it. Go go to dinner and talk about it afterwards. And You know what I mean? Like, even if it was offensive, like, in, enjoy it. Yeah. I Soak mean, it in. 
I mean, it, it's just, you know, at the end of the night, there's a lot of people that just like, I mean, this is rep crowds in general. They all hang out and talk, but like, you know, it's people are really, you know, in a really good mood or really excited that mm-hmm. they got to do it. That's when you know, you know, it was really good or really crazy when the theater staff is annoyed at the end of the night because they're like, they won't even leave their seats. They, they can't even, they can't even walk into the lobby to wait to talk about the film. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it, I mean, the thing is, and a lot of people seem to miss that, like when you're, regardless of what you're doing, if you're showing a movie, you're performing in a band or whatever, ultimately it's audience experience. Mm-hmm. Because for me, the most important thing that happens that night, regardless of what stupid shit might come out of my mouth, just to hype people up, the most important thing is the movie. Yeah. Everything is there to cater towards the movie. The mate, the movie's the headliner. The movie's the reason you're there. It doesn't matter that I'm there. It doesn't matter the pre-show's there. But everything there is to hype up, build up, and give the warmest welcome to the movie before it hits the screen. And that's my biggest philosophy, you know, philosophical thing when it comes to programming and presenting in person. And, you know, things that have changed. We used to do a lot of fucking food eating contests, and we used to throw a lot of fucking zebra cakes at people for holidays. <laughs> Don't necessarily miss that stuff. I forgot the food eating contest. There's yeah, definitely quite a few. The, the, there, there's <laughs> a very disastrous pumpkin pie eating contest for when we did on Blood Rage that one of the biggest shit shows ever but we'll just leave it at that so but you know partly because of the pandemic and partly because like getting tired of cleaning up that mess yeah i mean it was never as bad as picking up spoons after the room but like you know people getting pie everywhere is not necessarily fun to clean up i mean we used to lay out fucking trash bags under everything i think the last eating contest i remember doing was for the camp void marathon where we had people eat vegan meatballs before meatballs too and the one guy that was vegan who thought he was going to win took his time and enjoyed them. Yeah. So those kind of went away. The other thing we used to do pretty early on, this is mostly when we were doing like screenings in the Spielberg, which is the 80 theater in the Egyptian. I, I, we, I just curate a trailer show before the movie and just pick things that were kind of themed with the movie or things that occasionally was upcoming attractions and previews, but it was just more like fun trailers that went along with the movie. And a lot of that just kind of just started meshing and evolving with the pre-show. So being, it just kind of felt redundant. So that got dropped. And after you go through all these steps of figuring out what you want to show, getting it booked, making sure you secure the print or DCP, making sure it's working fine, you project it. At the end of the night, everyone's left and happy. You get to do it all over again. And i got to take the fucking film back. Yeah, Nick's got to take the fucking it's, film it's back. It's got to be back and, and you know... The correct amount of time, studios get mad. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. It's, you know, and then, like you say, then it's on to the next one. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it. there's one thing I've tried to work on to better myself with is enjoying, like, doing these screenings because I, I think I've talked about this before, but you get in a habit of just, like, you don't get that endorphin high from doing them. And it's just like, all right, on to the next. Yeah. On to the next. On to the next. And one thing I'm going to say advice-wise is, like, enjoy your screenings. You know, even if you don't end up watching the movie because you're hanging out in the lobby talking to someone or you have a guest or whatever, enjoy and appreciate that you get to do them. Because at the end of the day, and I said this earlier, film programming is not really a job that a lot of people get the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. It's not even really a real job outside of, like, the few full-time film programmers out there. I'm not even a full-time one. Right. So... But if you're doing events, 
make sure you enjoy it and have fun because like you just kind of want to be able to look back and say like wow i got to do some cool things i got to show some cool movies and that's all you can really ask for so if you get this opportunity and you get to this point where you show a movie appreciate it celebrate it you know what i mean because that stuff is important too because at the end of the day you need to want to be able to do it again for those of you who have been listening and made it through this um i hopefully i answered most of your questions but if not feel free to send them over social media and if we get enough of them maybe we'll do a follow-up you know but for now we're going to take one last commercial break here but when we come back it's rewatch and listen here on the cinematic void podcast ladies and gentlemen we are proud to present the new General Cinema trailer, produced by Industrial Light and Magic Incorporated, a division of Lucas Films Limited. Have a little fun and watch the screen carefully during the segment devoted to refreshment counter services. Guess the total number of pieces of candy that appear and enter our Count the Candy contest. Now, sit back and enjoy the show. Mary Lou Maloney, that girl who died in our school. Mary Lou Maloney is back to the prom, and she's going to make sure it's a night you'll never want to remember. Hello, Mary Lou, prom night two, rated R. Starts Friday, consult your local newspaper for showtimes. You've just got to come see us in our new movie, Satan's Cheerleaders. We've got the power. We're rated R. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. So, Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to since then? Uh, let's see... Uh, I haven't reading anything, man. So I just gotta, I'm just gonna have to confess that <laughs> right up front. I've been reading anything, and it's, I, I feel shame. But uh, watch, you see, recently I watched uh, the. It's actually probably one of one of, if not the first uh, Kurosawa film that I've watched, uh, Akiru. I think it's pronounced. I also just watched Stalker down at the Arrow. I think I talked about this on the last episode. Uh, my buddy Nikolai and I are doing a podcast called Spine Numbers, and the first episode will probably be out at the end of next month, I think. Um, but our first episode is going to be on Stalker. And uh, <clears throat> I went down and introed the film and had an interesting experience uh, overall. But I entered the film, and then afterwards we actually just sat on the stage and recorded the podcast, not in front of a live audience, but uh, just to, just to kind of set it up and just... I don't know. You know. I was hoping you did it in front of a live audience. Imagine what, if these, what if we just set up like, like we're just like, oh, by the way. <laughs> by the way, motherfuckers, and then all your podcasts. Please, please stay for the podcast. They're like, what the fuck? Dude, all, all your podcasts would be the, near, the fucking sound of those arrow fucking chairs slapping back. It's the worst fucking sound to hear while doing a Q&A. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> you you want to talk about your intro? Um. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've thrown, I've thrown Zoe under the bus enough. I don't think I need to do that anymore. I've done that with every, 
you know, I've, t- I've told the story enough. I don't need to embarrass Zoe any longer. Um, <laughs> All right. But, uh, but yeah, that had an interesting intro, but it was cool. I went and I didn't really talk much about the film. Um, I didn't really plan to. I was going to save that for after on the podcast, but, and just the, leave, the pod- leave, leave those poor people alone, dude. I, I'm pod- going to come and talk to them for an hour about Stalker if they want. Let's go. But uh, you'd be surprised how <laughs> how often that happens with people's intros. Yeah. So I was just like, I'm just going to go up there and say not a whole lot of fucking anything. Um, uh, be, real quick, and this is going to come back to programming and introing films. It's always best unless you're doing like bits or skits or something plan sort of planned out. Mm-hmm. Regular intro should be like two to five minutes. If you're doing a bit that's setting things up, like the stuff I do with Deanna, mm-hmm. you can go as much as 10. But anything beyond that, you're treading in dangerous water. No, nah, man, I'm up there for 30 seconds, bro. I'm be like, gone. Stalker rules, dude. <laughs> Basically. Like, look. <laughs> look, I'm not going to. Look, you're going to sit here for three hours. You don't need to hear me talk. You know, valid that's point. a fucking, that's the truth. But uh, anyway, I also just watched a separation, which is a 2011 film by Asgar Farati. That's I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to just roll with that. But uh, I know he did a film last year called uh, a hero. Um, this that we screened at the Cinematech. Um, that's also supposedly really good, but a separation is awesome. Just highly recommended. Um, and I think all his films are, are, highly regarded um and it's just a mm, it's a drama i guess you know just a, just a drama but like kind of uh i i think all his films are kind of like moral discussions on like you know family and and just life in general it's just i'm looking you know, at the description <clears throat> of this movie it's just like a, ethical philosophy in the form of like you know by this persian director i don't know it's great seems like downer cinema Man, you know where I'm at. Yeah, you know, you know what I do. <laughs> you know what I'm into. I'm either watching fucking horror movies or shit that's just sad, or it's gonna be fucked up in some way. I'm sorry, I'm not very interesting this week. I haven't. I've been playing a lot of Borderlands too. I'm just back in that shit. Just uh, building to, up my player, just farming guns, dude. Just looting. Do we need to change, rewatch, <laughs> and listen to play, watch, and listen? Man, I, I swear I'm gonna read some books. Um, I've been, <laughs> <laughs> I've been, uh, I've been on some like hardcore and metal type tip lately as far as music goes not a lot of hip-hop um and i got i gotta say i got a lot of the new shit i've been listening to from my buddy carlos is uh he does a a thing called the no echo fanzine which is basically like a you know an online magazine uh dedicated to punk and hardcore but uh you know if you're looking for new punk and hardcore that's definitely like that's the place where you're gonna find it like literally every day just like it's so much new music like it's hard to even keep up but you can you can kind of uh there's lots of different types of hardcore and metal and punk too you know what i mean so you can just kind of find your niche in there and figure out what the fuck you're trying to listen to and uh i don't know if there's just tons of great new bands like uh pain of truth uh age of apocalypse the new gridiron that came out last week i think it's called like not good at saying goodbyes or something like that like it's it's so good it's so ignorant uh, I love that 2000s era hardcore is now back in business. Baby. I mean, even even kind of like 90s metallic hardcore. Like, I'm not saying these bands sound like Earth Crisis or Strife, but I mean, it come or Next Step Up or whatever the fuck, like classic bands. But it definitely takes a page out of that book. It's just, it, and the best thing is, just the music production now. Even if you're recording at home, I mean, like it's just so over the top 
better and easier to do that like records sound great and like so now a heavy band now will always sound heavier than a record from the 90s just due to a recording oh definitely because like if you listen the one thing about like a lot of those 90s hardcore early 2000 hardcore like as heavy as as those bands were live some of those records fucking sound wimpy as shit they sound like shit man um so so now i mean yeah there's just everyone everyone's got the fucking crunch it's like we're gonna make this shit tough um let me see if there's any anything else it's like that i've been listening to a lot um, and I've just been listening to that new hum record still not, not that new. I guess it came out in early 21, 20. I don't know. It came out during the fucking, the, the panty, the Demi, the panty Demi. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It came out somewhat recently called inlet and, uh, you know, hum is like a band that was primarily from the nineties and they dropped this record out of surprise, like just out of nowhere. No one knew this was coming out and, uh, it's a fucking treat. I've never said that before in my life, by the way. I've never said that anything was even. I've never even said that a treat was a treat. I would never. <laughs> I, I, I find, you know, we were also talking about like phrases and terms that you get trapped into and you don't really want to say, but it just comes in your head. You just put a microphone in front of me and I just start saying, no, it's I, a the, treat. The amount of times I've done intros and talked about like pristine 35 millimeter prints and said, you're in for a treat. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like, <laughs> It's like, I'm not fucking working at goddamn Willy Wonka or something like that. Here's your fucking treat. Everlasting gobstoppers, chocolate ice cream, and Halloween too, you know? Working at the fucking milk shop. Fuck. Yeah, I'd need to stop doing that. And then watch next week when I do Carnival of Souls. I'll be like, you're in for a treat. I mean, you are. You're in for a treat. Actually, you are. Actually, you're in for a literal treat because it's a beautiful fucking 35 millimeter print. Hell yeah. (laughs) Anyway. All right, man. Well, so what have you been reading, watching, listening to, or video game playing? Well, you're or... in for a treat. No. Yeah. All right. Uh, read a friend of the void, Mike Felix, just gifted me um, this book called Landis, The Story of a Real Man on 42nd Street by Preston Fassel. Um, it's about Bill Landis, who ran the pretty famous like horror zine back in the 80s called Sleazoid Express. Mm-hmm. I've just barely cracked into it. Probably not enough to actually say I'm reading it, but like I've read a couple pages, so that's where I'm at. Um, watch, I'm just going to do a couple highlights here because still watching things at a tear. Sometimes I watch things late at night, like, you know, comfort movies, sleep stuff, but I'm only, you know, counting the things that like actively watching. One of those things was Death Wish 4 The Crackdown. Holy shit, I have not seen that movie in years, and it's fucking ridiculous and brilliant in so many ways. This was the one directed by Jay Lee Thompson, who was a longtime Charles Bronson collaborator. They attended Midnight, White Buffalo, tons of things. This was after Bronson refused to work with Michael Winter again after Death Wish 3. Mm-hmm. And things about Death Wish 4 that are surprising. This is the only one that does not have a hardcore, graphic, brutal rape in it. Mm-hmm. There's one attempt that gets stopped by Bronson, which has one of the best you know, opening dialogue exchanges, I would say. Is actually used on a Charles Bronson record. Cool. The band Charles Bronson, mm-hmm. who used some of the best Charles Bronson quotes for those records. At some point, we need to get Mark McCoy, who does Youth Attack records, on here to talk about Charles Bronson. I've, he's <laughs> I, on Letter- I know he's a big film guy. No, he's on Letterboxd, and yeah. he, he gave this one five stars. Cool. But anyway, the movie starts with the, the, the group of rapists like, who the fuck are you? And Bronson just says death and just fucking shoots him. Hell yeah. It's fucking great. Has an exploding Danny Trejo. There's rocket launchers. Like, it, what year is this from? Fuck, 
it's definitely later 80s. Okay. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'd say maybe 88, 89. I'm just guessing here. Mm-hmm. Um, I also watched one of our high school favorite shot on video movies, Bloodletting, because that just came out on Blu-ray. Hell yeah, I actually, I need to grab one of those as well. It's, you know, the way <clears throat> Bloodletting is, it's basically about a girl who finds this serial killer mm-hmm. who basically she wants to learn, who had killed her best friend, now she wants to be a serial killer too. It's kind of a love story. It's a movie that shouldn't work. But it fucking works amazingly. Like, you know, has some Tarantino-esque dialogue. You know, just like fast, snip, like snappy, quirky kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some good gore. It's shot on, I think, like mini-DV or something like that. And, like, it Th- has... This is maybe the only... The only uh, the only film that I can really go, like, I found that. Like, yeah. I remember I found this and, like, showed it. Like, I was just like, I made my mom watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. I don't think she appreciated it as much as you did. No. I mean, we on that first, when our old band, like when we did um, In Spite on the, I think the second, or no, the first demo, we used the sound clip from this mm-hmm. movie. And I'm just going to drop it in right here. So why the hell would you come to the guy who whacked your best friend and ask him how to kill somebody? I mean, I thought I had fucking problems. Because not so coincidentally, I had my first orgasm that same night. Yeah, that, that, that's a little taste for you there. <laughs> anyway. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's definitely it has a twist at the end, which like you might expect, maybe not. Actually, I don't think you would expect this twist. So it's it's a solid thing, mm-hmm. or I should say, a solid movie. I mean, it, it a bit, your shot on video mileage might vary because I know sometimes that is a detriment to some people. Uh, Scooter McRae was in Bloodletting, who uh, directed Shattered Dead, mm-hmm. which I recently watched on Boys Bible Study. Boys, so uh, go check out that podcast. Too. So I'm doing a bunch of promo on this episode. Hey, look at you just plugging Fuck shit yeah, in. Dude, like, let's go. Spine numbers, plug. <laughs> Boys Bible study, I'm, plug. Look at this shit. I'm out here talking, dude. No, you're out here talking. <laughs> you fucking, 50 fucking episodes, and you probably <laughs> talk like maybe like an hour out of those hours. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I'm glad you're out there spreading the just, wealth. Just chatting it up, dude. Chatting it up. <laughs> shooting the shit on podcasts. <laughs> It's a treat. It's a fucking treat. It's a treat to have Nick Vance on your podcast. Book him now. Hey, book me now, bro, before, before I'm all booked up. <laughs> uh, other things I watch, I watch Night Game, which is uh, which we're going to actually probably be talking about at some point because we're going to do a double header kind of podcast episode. We talk about doing baseball movies and like or horror genre movies that have to do with baseball or softball, and there isn't a lot, but I think we can do a good double header episode of this mm-hmm. and blood games although they're kind of polar opposite in what they're about but they are yeah. baseball softball jason right um i don't night game for those you who haven't seen it it's a roy schreider best known for jaws french connection he plays the cop in houston who's after a serial killer that kills people at a carnival now you'll watch most of this movie and like the baseball angle seems to only be in the background but as you watch it you realize there is a connection to it so a lot of people online did not like this movie, but like I guess my mileage for like police procedurals and like you know just Texas cops being over their head and Roy Scheider fucking smoking and you know being way too old for this role, <laughs> like I enjoyed it a lot. Like I, I I gave it like three and a half stars on Letterbox. I, I I you know mileage might vary on like your tolerance for stuff like that, but like I maybe I'm just becoming a dad. Maybe I just like dad movies. Which leads into one of the two void screenings that happened since we recorded last. And 
That is the hang, Deadpool. Hang on real quick, though. I just wanted a little side here. You know, uh, I feel like 90s movies now are actually what a dad movie would be. And I just want to crush both of our, our souls that, like, we're... We're treading some some dangerous granddad territory here. Yeah. <laughs> you whippersnappers, you haven't seen classic cinema like Reservoir Dogs, right? Stuff like yeah, it's it's actually true because like, you know, I'm getting ready to show Carnival Souls, which is going to be celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. Right. Think of that shit. I'm showing a movie later this year that's going to have its 40th anniversary, which. I don't want to reveal yet because it hasn't been announced, and it's just like, holy fuck, that movie's 40 years old? That's right. I can't wait for the Teen Wolf uh, 40 anniversary. What year was that? It was that it's like 86. 86? Yeah. Coming up. Get that Michael J. Fox on the phone. Get, yeah. get the guy that showed his dick in the background. Hell yeah. That, that's the guy I want to do the Q&A with. We gotta the get, guy, we the gotta guy get flash- Styles to come out. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back to dad movies, traditional dad movies. <laughs> Uh, I did a screening part of the Cinemanda sequel series that was in theater. I showed the last Dirty Harry movie, The Deadpool. It was probably one of the best 35mm prints I've seen. came from Warner Brothers, and when I got, when the Ben, the head projectionist, like, wrote me about it, he's like, it's like this original print from 1988 or whatever. It's never been plattered. It looks untouched. Hell yeah. I think it was just probably a release print that, like, didn't play a lot. Mm-hmm. It looked incredible. It was a fucking beautiful print. Had Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, thanks to thanks to friend of the boy Del James, who's their tour man, tour manager of Guns N' Roses. He was kind enough to ask Duff on my behalf to do a little intro, and explain how Guns N' Roses ended up in the Deadpool. Sweet. And the other thing I watched in the theater was the closing, I guess, night of the sequel series. I showed Halloween Two, which was a restruck restruck print from the Universal Studios vaults because we talked about the Universal fire that like destroyed a bunch of shit Mm -hmm. and they kind of redid prints of some of their stuff. This was one of them. Holy shit. That Halloween two print was incredible looking. It was, it was a blast. And like that crowd was a lot of hardcore Halloween two fans and like people were tuned in. It was a lot of fun. There was someone that was working at the L three who I can't remember who it was. It was dressed as Michael Myers, brought him up, did a Q and a. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. Not sure who it was. I, I think Mike might know who it is, but hmm. whatever. I'm trying to wrap things up because I feel like we've talked for like 18 hours at this point on this episode of the podcast. Right on. We're like, we'll start earlier because it'll be like, you know, we'll be more awake and more. Jim, Jim's famous last words or famous first words were. This should be short. This should be short. <laughs> and now this is probably going to be the longest fucking episode we do, but whatever. All right, listen, I'm going to power through this, guys. Uh, listen, recently I threw on some. Classic records. I uh, listened to Misery Index by a band called Asuk. I do realize the name is fucking terrible. The band fucking rips. Is it Asuk? Because the, the lots. Yeah. It, I've never heard anyone say Asuk. It, no, I mean, if we can find some of the band to say what it is, I'm pretty sure it's just, they kid like, huh, Asuk's funny. Yeah. And then just re- add the dots like fucking Motorhead or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? They probably thought it was funny, but like, you know, honestly, that, if you like grindcore death metal, like short song death metal, like Ass Suck is... Yeah, it's the real deal. It's the real deal. Like, there's this record in Anti-Capital, and there's some singles and stuff, but, like, you know, I've kind of, like, over the years, always liked Anti-Capital more than this, but I think Misery Index is their best record. Mm-hmm. I think it's just straight rippers all the way through. And then we were having a conversation, because I was busting your balls about the Mirrored Crip record again, we were talking about, like, you know, if we ever... If if that if the one record actually comes out and we do a second record, you know, we should probably look towards more ass suck as a model. 
And then you're like the only other band that's close to doing that was this French Canadian band called Dahmer. So because of that discussion, I put on the Dahmer discography. It's called Studio Sessions, which is a collection of everything they recorded in a studio. They also had like boombox and demo recordings. And for like a grindcore death metal band, it's a really polished fucking recording. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we were talking about how wimpy hardcore records from that era sounded like, but like a lot of the death metal grind records fucking sounded good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think it just depends on the producers. Like, I think certain people understood the bands they were working for more than others. I, the one thing that might be a turnoff to some of you to like grindcore and death metal, like Dahmer has a variety of voices. Mm hmm. Not a lot. Of, there's some like low pitched death growls. There's some weird like yelpy barking sound stuff. All, all the you know, I think all the lyrics are sung in French. In like they're also like although they would use all the serial killer imagery and all the songs are named after serial killers, they would never condone it. Like this person sucks. Yeah, it, it was a weird kind of. It was their gimmick, but they were against their gimmick. Yeah, yeah, they were definitely, and they, even on the back of the LP, like it says, like if you're a racist, you shouldn't be holding this record in your hands. Like, hey, homophobes, we're three gays. I yeah. just love it. It says that. They didn't but, fuck but around. So they're like have all this, you know, touchy subject matter. But again, you say they're they're not condoning. It's I don't know. Grind grindcore is a crazy thing. I, I think it was just the artistic intent. So yeah. it's like you know, this is something that we might have a discussion about. Furthermore, about film at some point. I know we touched upon it at different points, but artistic intent versus reality and like the separation of art from artists and that kind of stuff. And I think Dahmer's a good example because clearly like three gay dudes playing fucking death metal grindcore, writing songs about serial killers, I think kind of taking a piss out of it, like the, the idol worship of it, mm-hmm. but obviously also using the imagery on top of it. Something to digest, I guess. Other things I've been listening to, I listened to Gorilla Biscuits start today. One of the greatest hardcore, if not, greatest records ever written and the greatest pop punk record of all time yeah i'd say that too i mean i'm sure they don't want to say that but <laughs> those songs are catchy as fuck mm-hmm. and then for a new record that just came out i listened to the new denzel curry record melt my eyes see your future it's kind of laid it's kind of laid back and jazzy gets a little trappy and noisy okay it's got a little something for everyone i uh, haven't i haven't dug into it yet but Denzel's definitely one of my favorite newer rappers yeah i mean it, he does interesting things he had saul williams on there as soon as i saw saul williams as a guest i was like okay you're you're going to some different territory yeah, here, yeah, yeah which is why i kind of appreciate because like you know as much as we've talked about gangster rap and like that resurgence mm-hmm. i kind of like you know weird art rap too yeah yeah, yeah. and he's definitely doing it better than a lot of people and you know he can still fucking rhyme hard and be experimental and still be cool yeah i mean he's he's really never put out the same record twice and so that's another thing that makes him a super exciting artist like you can you can always expect something new and different and and most likely very interesting yeah so if you enjoy your hip-hop a little more experimental check out that denzel curry record but that wraps up this episode the cinematic void podcast we got more episodes coming up. Don't really have a timeline for anything, but we had a lot of guests that we were supposed to record in February. Those are going to slowly start being recorded over the next couple months. And if you've been tired of us not talking about movies specifically, don't worry, that's coming back soon. And also, we'll, probably the next episode will be that Spine Numbers collab episode, the jump off, as it were. As Nick and Nikolai join me, we watch a Criterion title, and then they hop on their little scooters. And go do their own podcast without me. So to speak. So to speak. I'll probably be a guest on the fucking show anyway. So whatever. But until next time. See see you in the void. void.
Thank you.